Welcome to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG, a literary exploration of the world of Sherlock Holmes and the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Happy New Year, BFG! It is 2018, episode 14 of Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG. Scott Hi. Powell over here in Dumfries, Scotland, and the Ying to my Yang, the BFG himself, Joshua, Dwight Gordon, Taylor, Canada, Ontario. What's it doing over there, pal? Warming up. It's warming up or you're warming up? Uh, no, it is the outside the house is warming up. It's been uh, cold all week, so now it's starting to warm up again. It's funny. But that just funny means more that. melting snow and then more more freezing ice next week. So it's a cycle. It's a cycle. Well, it's funny you mention that because we've had some uncharacteristically winter weather here in Scotland, the south of Scotland. I heard. Yeah, it's been weird. We had three days last week, which were kind of well. Today's Saturday. The what is this? The twenty seventh. Yeah, twenty yes. seventh. So like it was actually the week before, or was it? Yeah, yeah, it was a week before, so not this week that we're in, but the one before. Anyway, we had three days of snow and yellow weather warnings, you know, for snow and ice and stuff like that. And yeah, it did snow, but it didn't amass to anything that you you know. Yellow we're, weather we're warnings, eh? Yeah, but the whole the whole problem over here is that there's no infrastructure to deal with snow, right? So of course, so no plowing contracts or well, yeah, or anything along those lines. Yeah. So they, what what do they do? <laughs> well, they've got they got silos for you know, holding stuff, right? But uh, they need more than that. Yeah, they need more than that. And so <clears throat> basically, um, long story short, there were three days that I thought maybe I wouldn't have to go into school, but every morning started and ended the same way with a eager <laughs> check of the email and a waiting on the local radio, which you wouldn't listen to otherwise because it's total pish for news, you know, on, on school closures. And then the inevitable main roads are open, Please travel with care. See you at school. So I didn't ha didn't have a snow day. Uh, last snow day we had here was two or three years ago, but it was interesting to play the game of suspense. Okay. Uh, however, enough. all of the snow that did fall and which was followed, like you just said a minute ago, by rain in a cycle, it's flooded the banks of the rivers here. So all kinds of car damage and building damage to uh, properties and commercial properties, particularly down by the uh, down by the big river, the White Sands. Anyway. Well, that's what I guess what when when you have like weather come out of out of freaking nowhere like that, you know, you got to adjust the best ways you can, right? So, Quite bravo right. to right. to the um to the response, the best you could possibly do given the circumstances. Yeah, I don't know that they did anything really, but um best they possibly could do. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And that's not so that's judging on, that's a, not on a very much. low very low standards of course, you know, that we're basing this on, but Oh yeah. Very low standards. <laughs> anyway, look, pal, uh, it is 2018, and we got 13 episodes of this uh, big bad puppy under our belt. 
We are working our way through the return of Sherlock Holmes, and today we're starting our new style format. It's actually not that new, it's just a little bit, uh, a little bit of an adjustment to what we've done before. Why don't you tell the folks at home uh, what, we're, what we're on about? Why must I always explain these things? You're so, you're, you're, you're so much more, what's the word, um, effervescent and perspicacious than I am. Uh, that... uh, well, I like your vocabulary, you see, and I thought if, if anybody could enunciate and articulate in a new and excited <laughs> way, then it would be you. Plus, you, you know, you... you're, you're five hours behind me. It's, it's 2.30 here almost in the afternoon, and it's only 9.30 your way. You need the exercise to get yourself ready for the show because we got a wallop of a show today. Well, I have to, you flatter me, sir. Thank you. Uh, what's happening here is that instead of doing three uh, stories in, in one show, we're now doing four. Um, so we're going to be kind of having shorter segments uh, for, to get those four stories in. Um, we find that, you know, this condensed format, I think, will be a lot better to get over the fine points because sometimes I think when we get when, when we kind of open up each story, like uh, three per episode, we tend to kind of diverge in a different direction. And sometimes I feel we miss the points uh, or the themes. Um, we kind of overshadow them with a little bit more uh, minutia than we should. You know what I mean? Trifles, you might say. Trifles, yeah, you, you might say, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, people, you, you might disagree with this and say, you know, that, you know, it's uh, kind of a, gives a, a natural flow to everything and, you know, because it is an actual conversation that we're having. Like, mm-hmm. very, very much of this is improvised based just on notes that we have. So it's not like, you know, we're following some certain script or something. No, so, the only thing we might script are our summaries when we're writing them up. Yeah, exactly. It's the summaries because you want to give a little bit of uh, fl- uh, flourish, you know, to to the moment so if anything if any set pieces that we do have um would it would definitely be the summaries mm-hmm. and <clears throat> i think you're right to say i mean who knows right who knows what our millions of listeners prefer whether they prefer the uh the just kind of free-flowing based on three stories with a little bit of digression here and there or whether mm-hmm. this work today uh, and this new structure is going to amplify their experience I should say, though, we're not losing our musical selections. We're not losing our banter, our happiness, our excitement, our uh, our, our general chat. It's still going to be the same thing. It's just going to be a little tighter so that uh, we got, you know, we got a calendar year to get through what remains, maybe just under, of the entire Sherlock Holmes canon. And we want to do it, you know, we want to do it properly without jeopardizing the rest of our lives. Absolutely. I mean... The thing is, too, is one thing I've been making sure I'm doing when reading Sherlock Holmes is as much as I'm enjoying and loving it and, and going on the show and everything, I've also been trying to kind of read a book on the side, too, at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, because you don't want to drown yourself into it. Otherwise, you get – I think you'll look at it less impartially mm-hmm. if, you, if, if you just focus fully on top – fully on, that, on, on, the, on the subject at hand. Yeah, I, you agree? I do, 100%. And I'm part of a faculty book club at school, so we're all reading different books, uh, which are – you know, each 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 teacher recommends a book, and then you get about three weeks or a month to read it. And we meet for pints after work, and we talk about it. Last week, for example, we met for uh, for my story. Uh, it was just mine that was calendared, so everybody was reading Ernest Hemingway's Across the River and Into the Trees, which hmm. uh, isn't one of his best stories. Um, but one of the reasons I wanted to select it was because it is not one that I really like, and I'm I know that people I work with have read Hemingway before. 
but I doubt they would have read that one, and indeed nobody had. So I thought it was interesting to pick a book that was less critically acclaimed, though it still came a year before The Old Man and the Sea. And we had quite a bit of fun talking about it, you know, and the misogyny of it, or the, the full yeah. misogyny of it. And um, Full misogyny, yeah, more yeah. like... We've also got, uh, well, we read The Handmaid's Tale earlier in the year. We oh, read yes. um, a book uh, by Sebastian Falks, who wrote a Bond book, Connection there, interestingly That's enough, right. uh, called Engleby, all about this uh, university student in the 70s who uh, turns out to be a killer. Um, and he, anyway, it's first person narrative, quite interesting, quite stream of consciousness type stuff. Um, dark. Twisted, but also quite evocative of the 70s period here in Britain. So I missed a lot of that sort of uh, leafy campus uh, 1970s British referencing. But it was still fun. And now I'm currently working through uh, Ali Smith's Autumn, which was nominated for the Booker Prize this year. And that's my mm. uh, my faculty or my department head's choice. And after that, oh. we've got uh, Wide Sargasso Sea by Gene oh, Rice. And yeah, right. so we got some good stories coming up. And yeah. it's fun to be part of that. But you have been reading work on the Plantagenets, haven't you? Yeah, I just read a, a book by um, um, De Desmond Seward. Uh, he's like a well-known histor histor uh, historian who uh, he has a couple of books under his belt, uh, nonfiction, of course, mm -hmm. uh, called The Demon's Brood, A History of the Plantagenet Dynasty. And the reason why it's called the Demon's Brood is because supposedly one of the the um, early, early members of the Plantagenets, before they called themselves the Plantagenets, uh, this is back in in France, in uh, in Anjou, which is where the Plantagenets come from. Uh, supposedly this, this man, uh, this early, I guess, progenitor, I, I should say, uh, was in the, was into the forest and ran into uh, a witch or some kind of demon woman named Melusine, and even though he was married, he had children with this woman, and basically um, there was a whole story about her about her being accused as a witch or some kind of demon, and then when they try to grab her, she turns into like some dragon or something and flies from the house, uh, and the, this kind of this whole thing about the demon haunting the Plantagenets is kind of this theme that he carries through. Um, going into getting with like the anger of Henry II on how he was just wanted full control over everything and, and so much that he caused his sons to hate him and war over him. Uh, then you have the John, then you have Prince John uh, or King John, who was like a terrible king and an angry, angry, wild, angry man. And then you go into people like uh, the later Plantagenets involved in the Wars of the Roses. You know the houses of York and Lancaster, like the Duke of York and. All Richard the Third, you know how the demon constantly haunts this specter of evil haunts this whole family up until its demise at Bosworth when Richard the Third was defeated by Henry Tudor. So it's a, it's it's a, each story each chronicle is very much set up like I guess you could describe it almost like Suetonius' Twelve Caesars or Plutarch's Lives, where he goes through the lives of each of the Plantagenet kings, beginning with Henry the Second all the way to Richard the Third, and just how. Um, the, you know, they're, they're how they were. He describes how they were as 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 uh, you know as individuals, uh, how they how, how how they let their you know how they rule their kingdom and how they didn't rule their kingdom, so on and so forth. So that was that was really good. And just to go into this uh, outside of the context of the story, I've just been reading uh, nonfiction. I think 
lately as sort of like it's my bus read it's my lunch it's my my work time it's my lunchtime read uh because i find that it's not as engrossing as saying reading like some novel um it, well it is it's a different type of engrossing but it's an it's an engrossing that you can take yourself out of any moment and go back to what you were doing yeah you know what i mean i do so yeah, yeah it's not it's not as absorbing but if anyone is interested in uh, english medieval history and how french you know english history actually was at the time up until like the wars of the roses uh, and seeing just how you know the medieval world slowly developed uh, into this modern world, I do recommend the read. It's it's really good, and there's little tidbits just like Suetonius or Plutarch that are really juicy, and uh, you I think you'll find really interesting. So that, I, 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 I I recommend it wholeheartedly. Well, that's high praise indeed, Suetonius and Plutarch. Oh, absolutely. Well, I've um, I, I've got I'm looking at it right now. The next book that I'm going to be taking out is uh, I, I mean, apart from this big project we're doing, and apart from the stuff I'm reading for school, is uh, Stacy Schiff's Cleopatra, uh, hmm. nominated for for the Pulitzer. That's the book, of course, that you, my friend, gave me for Christmas a couple of years ago. That's right. That was a move. That was interesting with that book too. Is that there was a whole movement uh, a, a couple of years ago. Angelina Jolie wanted to make that into a film starring herself. And that never got off the rail, off the ground for some particular reason. Maybe because of her health issues a couple years ago. Yeah, I don't maybe. know. Maybe because Brad's gone, is on her heart anymore. A bit misogynistic comment, I know, but I don't know. I just for some reason it just hasn't come on the ground. But I think it would have it would would have been interesting, you know, to see a modern interpretation of Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Segue from that back into the world yeah. of Holmes. Back into Victorian England, eighteen ninety five. Indeed. Look, I got an idea. This is a little bit um, unorthodox, given what we have done since, uh, well, the start of last year, because we're about a year anniversary into this now. We are. Anyway, I thought maybe what we could do today, just so that <coughs> we are, just so that we're ready and prepared, I thought maybe we could actually light our pipes early on, right now, and then they're ready, we're lit, and we're enjoying ourselves. Yeah, I say, let's light up. Okay, to go. What are you on today? Uh, just uh, some so, something from the Far East. Something from the Far East. Okay, but here not you go. opium. But okay, not opium. Well, right. I was looking. I was looking for my my slipper, my Persian's slipper, but I couldn't find the stash in there. You couldn't find your stash. No. Mm. One of your pals been after it, maybe. Possibly. So someone stole my other slipper. We made from the other slipper. Well, that's us now. <clears throat> Both pipes are lit, yours and mine. Um, I don't actually know what this one is. It's a bit of a risk. I just kind of saw it lying on the sideboard and decided to give it a shot. It's probably uh, wood chippings or something or uh, sawdust. Well, it tastes chocolatey. That's all I can tell you. Uh, it's definitely not sawdust then. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Unless you have a chocolate wood house. It could be from a cocoa plant, though. Could be a cocoa plant, yeah. Okay, pal, enough of this uh, bullshit. Let's get straight down to business. Our first story today, and we're going through four of them, is the adventure of Black Peter, followed by uh, the adventure of Charles Augustus Milverton. <laughs> then we've got the adventure of the Six Napoleons, and we're going to finish off with the adventure of the Three Students. Now Let's I'm down. I'm down to get you some publication information for Black Peter, and you're going to uh, inspire us with a short summary. So basically, what you got to know for this is that it was published in February, uh, well, the end of February in Collier's Weekly, 1904, and in the March edition of the Strand Magazine. It was 
pretty well received as stories go, although this one, as we'll get into, is a little bit different to stories that we have read. Uh, I think it's, it's very unique, actually, in a lot of ways. Uh, in terms of public reviews, Goodreads have a couple of things to say. Our friends at Goodreads, um, a new guy, haven't read much from him or tapped into his well, but his name is George Slade. Uh, he's hmm. got a couple nice reviews out there, and this one good. is a three three star review. And it's, it's good not... to see someone out there who you know who uh, cares about what he's what the, about the opinions he's expressing, and because he you know he's about sharing the, the sharing the knowledge and sharing the love of books, and that's what I that's what I like when you have a good reviewer on on Goodreads, as opposed to some just you know tweet tw some mindless tweet or you know what I mean. Uh, well, you took that and ran away with it, unfortunately, because what I was about to say is, although having looked at some <laughs> of his reviews, they're quite good, this one isn't so good. Uh, oh, it's short, sweet, funny, but not particularly enlightening. Three hmm. stars. Holmes stabs a dead pig with a harpoon! Exclamation mark. This, however, is a little bit better from Janeth. Uh, not the most twisted Sherlock Holmes adventure, but the story is one hell of an entertainer. And another case where hmm. Holmes had to burn... A lot of calories physically rather than using his genius. <laughs> I really enjoyed the raw brutality of sailors in this story and their blind rage, not to forget their inhuman strength. Of Even course. though it was not a very complicated case for the great detective to solve, it had a lot of energy and blood. More blood than most of the Sherlock Holmes stories. That's a five so, star review. Five star rip. I yeah. think he likes the I think our boy likes the gore. And my favorite of the bunch from Joanne G, another five star review. Don't be a miserable ne'er-do-well who beats your wife and daughter, or you may get a harpoon through the heart and no one will shed tears. You know what's amusing is I also went, went, went through Goodreads just so I could probably add on a couple more of those quotes in there just myself for the uh, story. Okay. And the three of those that you have you, you mentioned, I also copy and pasted here as well. Oh, well, <laughs> cool. Well, great minds and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Except so what... One of the harpoon does say, Holmes stabs a dead pig with a harpoon, exclamation point, Want to know why? Now that's a teaser. Ah, okay. I, I missed that last bit. That must have been line two. Could be, could be. But uh, sadly, I could find no trace of uh, uh, what's her name, Roar Cora and her and her cuppa. <laughs> she wasn't around. No, maybe the cafe is closed. Could be, could be. Anyway, Black Peter, enlighten, add context, color, decorate, bring us into the world of the story, and we'll get our jobs done. 1895 is a good year for our dynamic duo. And a Washington's chagrin, it almost comes crashing down when Holmes, having disappeared, ret returns to 221B, brandishing a spear like some deerstalker wearing Anglo Queequeg. Oh boy, there goes his sanity, Watson says to himself, surprised that it took his friend this long to lose his mind. ACD then throws us into the year in review, following the big payoff of the Duke of Holderness. Continuity, hmm. it's a wonderful thing that world builds the reader to insane fandom. With a gnarly, totally rad 80s montage of Sherlock doing the Pope a fave and some guy uses canaries for nefarious doings. Does anybody else want to read that story? <laughs> Sherlock Holmes versus the canaries. It writes itself. And then meanwhile... It does. 80s montage, fighting crime. 80s montage, fighting crime. 1895. <laughs> then Sherlock return, disappears and then he re then returns with the spear. Alas, it is not Queequeg that is possessing Holmes' divine spirit. In fact, it is, of course, Ahab, as the war against crime continues. The client du jour is Stanley Hopkins, a rookie of Scotland Yard. And given his attentiveness, it appears Holmes is now using his chemistry set to grow Scotland Yard DIs, hoping to break the mold with one that is actually competent at their job. 
Hopkins is investigating the death of a sealed of an old sea dog named Peter. That's Black Peter to you, Carrie, an angry, violent man from Dundee. Poor Scott. Scotland is not. Uh, I'm surprised Arthur Conan Doyle was able to give a bit, a little bit of uh, you know impartiality towards his native land. Mm. Uh, who has found himself transfixed to a spear in his personal little cabin, where he resets, where he rests from dealing blows to his wife and daughter after going on a tear. So who cares if, if abusive Black Peter is dead? Hopkins probably. He wants to solve the case as a means to boost his Scotland Yard stock and hopes Holmes can help him out. No wonder Jack the Ripper was never caught. Yeah. Holmes, Watson, and Hopkins head down to the crime scene, a little abode in Woodman's Lee in Sussex. This leads to the capture of John Hope Hopley Nelligan, a confused son of a disappeared banker who believes Carrie had known something about the disappearance of his father. A few passages before, Holmes notes to Hopkins that something was taken off the shelf of Carrie's cabin, and turns out it was a book, a ship's log to be precise, that Nelligan foolishly tries to return. He is caught red-handed. Sherlock throws his graduated cylinders, Bunsen burners at all, when his Sherlock, you know, when his Scotland Yard experiment supercop succumbs to Lestrade syndrome and ignores all the evidence to arrest Nelligan for Carrie's murder. <laughs> but our man Sherlock is able to divine that Nelligan is innocent, despite the clear motive of Carrie somehow holding onto the metal case full of stock certificates that clearly belong to Nelligan's missing, nay, murdered dad. Resorting to his Rolodex of gambits, Holmes lobs a fake want ad pincher to nab Patrick Cairns, an old harpooner who sailed with Carrie on the Sea Unicorn, matching the tobacco on Cairns, on Cairns with the pouch of tobacco found at the crime scene with, with that of Cairns. Nelligan is exonerated and gets closure, though we don't see it, on how Carrie overtook the ship Dad was on and finding a plethora of certificates throws Nelligan into the North Sea, son's spectacular Viking funeral. Carrie had some... <laughs> that summoned Cairns to his cabin in the woods to probably kill Cairns for being a witness Nelligan's senior's murder. But Cairns managed to get the upper hand with a harpoon. Justice isn't blind, it's just transfixed. <laughs> nice work. Yeah. Thank you. It just made, it kind of made me think, uh, it would have been cool if there was a Viking funeral part of that. There would have been, yeah. Viking funerals were always great. Anyway. Okay, right, pal. So uh, we got our pipes lit. We got uh, principles. We've got uh, investigation. We have, of course, the perpetrators, and we've got the environs. Finally, we've got our secondary characters and players to the story, which we're going to give a mark out of five, total out of 25, help us with our index, and so on and so forth. So I got a couple of really cool points here that throughout our discussion, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to, um, to bring up. Some of these mm -hmm. I found through my research. Some of them were generously put out there for me in uh, the annotations by Leslie Klinger in, in the, the book that I've, uh, I've got. So, I mean, how do you want to do this? Do you want to, uh, you want to just tap into the, the principles in this story? Yeah, uh, we, we can definitely do that. How did you find uh, Sherlock and Watson this time around? This time around, I found Sherlock and Watson pretty lame to be perfectly honest. Um, Watson certainly more than Sherlock, and I think this is something we're seeing more of in The Return, is that he's Watson is really... He's kind of utilized more as a heavy than anything else. Um, have, yeah, like a muscle, like Sherlock's yeah. muscle. Yeah. And also sort of like a stand-in for like Arthur Conan Doyle, because I'm noticing how like they describe things. Uh, Watson is noticing all these little things that Holmes would also notice now too. But then when when Watson actually speaks, any kind of you know observant uh, t intelligence just disappears because he's just as lost as. But 
it's like the narrator of it's like Watson the narrator and Watson the character are two different people, mm-hmm. especially when Watson speaks because he's then made the mouthpiece of the audience. What? And then you have you know the uh, the intelligent, uh, incisive mind w- w- working and following Sherlock around and all these perfect observations, you know, all these like very key observations, like n- like noticing that that, that 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 the door was scratched and stuff like that. Someone had been in there, like those kind of things. The, the door to the cabin, I mean to say. Yeah, and he still does, of course, pick up on stuff, Sherlock. I'm not, I'm not saying this isn't a, you know, he's not working here, but it's no. certainly lesser. Like Watson really doesn't do anything. He does hold a gun. Uh, the last few stories, like we're saying, you know, there's been an inertia with him. He's more of a sidecar partner. He's, he not, he's not really doing a hell of a lot. And I, I guess it's not, <clears throat> it's not exactly a difficult case for Holmes to solve this one. He does wrestle with the villain, I guess, you know, and that's yes. kind of that's kind of interesting. But uh, you know, he's funny. In this one, he spears a pig, yeah. and that's kind of cool. Like we see a bit more of his lighthearted side, um, yes. and there there is some good comedy in this one through the dialogue, particularly. But you know, I just I like the story. I thought it was really cool. The story is good. But we've got him up against something. Like I remember when I read the title of the Naval Treaty, I thought, "Oh, this is great!" You know, he's it's going to be like a Gloria Scott type thing, like he's dealing with like the Navy and stuff. And no, it's just yeah. this fucking moron that leaves a cup of tea. He leaves for a cup of tea and gets something stolen, and then he has brain yeah. fever, and you know, kind of that kind of brain lamed, fever. <laughs> it kind of lamed me out a bit. But in this one, I like that he's he's dealing with you know pirates and sailors and whaling ships. Yes. It's, it's a little bit cool. Like the currency of the story is better for him, even yes. though it isn't really. For me, at least, a challenging one for him. I, I went middle of the road with three out of five. Now, that's okay. that's how I felt. I mean, we can dig into it. We can go through a couple of quotes, some expressions, some cool stuff in the story. But overall, I went three out of five. I'm I'm kind of I, I went to a four. Oh, I, cool. I I found I, I found Watson kind of an audience surrogate in this and just muscle as as we we discussed. I liked I liked the idea of Sherlock grooming you know some sort of uh, uh, Scotland Yard prodigy of his own, and uh, maybe he wants you know to. Spread the spread the I guess the cure through the rest of the department, right? Because they're so inept and whatnot, and he wants to create a team of crime fighters. And I and I kind of found that kind of like showing his you know his zeal for justice and, and whatnot. And he wanted to improve Scotland Yard and with this young man Hopkins, and uh, and he seemed to like Hopkins. There's kind of like some, like there's yeah, almost like an, an, an avuncular kind of affection that he has for the for the lad. And uh, even even though there's also a bit of like you know like uh, for the love of God you know thing about it, right? So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like I like that aspect of Holmes, and I like I like parts of his character. You know, just like uh, how he like you know he uh, took the money, he took all the like, you know he took the money from Holderness, like those 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 little different traits, right? And and there's one trait uh, that you know that we'll discuss about him too, about his sense of justice, and I think we'll get into that in the next story. Uh, but um, overall, yeah, like I found that um, uh, how do I put it? Uh, uh, yeah, well, I, you're arguing I, it well. Yeah, yeah. I I, I just found uh, Holmes's character stuck. Uh, he stuck out in this in, in this, and I was following him through the, each part of the of, of the investigation, and and he played his 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 bit, his bit well, you know, in his own way. It was a very it was a very simplistic um, presentation of, of what he normally does, uh, how he solves the case and everything, and his reactions. You know, they're obviously predictable, but you know they work out. Um, it's very clear that you know that he's dealing with a red herring, and that there's someone else who actually killed the person, and he has all the evidence, and he's not telling anybody because it's going to be a big reveal at the end. Like so, it, so there is that functional aspect that's kind of a bit cliched, but at the same time, I like the add-on of him being like this, uh, having you know having his own little prodigy there, you know, to or protege, I should say, uh, to um, make Scotland Yard better. <laughs> make Scotland. Good- 
it's a good reading of it it's a good reading of it and i i like that you brought that up it's probably something i overlooked a little bit in my desire to see holmes doing more interesting things because he hasn't really done a lot of interesting things collectively in this collection of stories um and so i think you're right and i'll accept that and maybe i should be a little higher um because he does he does have a compassion for for this guy hopkins you're right and there is that human side that comes out for him so even if even though with Watson being kind of like a side a side note, I I, I give this uh, principles of four just just because of this uh, different faucet of Holmes being displayed. All right, shall I? I mean, I, I got a little bit here of him talking with Hopkins at the beginning during the I guess client interview, if you can call it that. Um, this first part has a really nice description in it, I think, and the second part touches on that sort of jocular relationship he's trying to to do as a mentor if indeed mentor is the right word to use because let's face it watson's still in the room you know yes Um, well i have fairly steady nerves as you know mr holmes but i give you my word that i've got i got a shake when i put my head into that little house it was droning like a harmonium with the flies and blue bottles and the floor and walls were like a slaughterhouse he called it a cabin and a cabin it was sure enough for you would have thought that you were in a ship there was a bunk at one end, a sea chest, maps, charts, a picture of the sea unicorn, a line of logbooks on a shelf, all exactly as one would expect to find it in a captain's room. And there in the middle of it was the man himself, his face twisted like a lost soul in torment, and his great brindled beard stuck upward in his agony. Right through his broad breast, a steel harpoon had been driven, and it had sunk deep into the wood of the wall behind him. He was pinned like a beetle on a card. Of course, he was quite dead, had been so, from the instant that he had uttered a last yell of agony. I know your methods, sir, and I applied them. Before I permitted anything to be moved, I examined most carefully the ground outside, and also the floor of the room. There were no footmarks. Meaning that you saw none? I assure you, sir, there were none. My good Hopkins, I have investigated many crimes, but I have never yet seen one which was committed by a flying creature. As long as the criminal remains upon two legs, so long must there be some indentation, some abrasion, some trifling displacement which can be detected by the scientific researcher. It's incredible that this blood-bespattered room contained no trace which could have aided us. I understand, however, from the inquest that there were some objects which you failed to overlook. The young inspector winced at my companion's ironical comments. I was a fool not to call you in at the time, Mr. Holmes. However, that's past praying for now. Yes... There were several objects in the room which called for special attention. One was the harpoon with which the deed was committed. It had been snatched down from a rack on the wall. Two others remained there, and there was a vacant place for the third. On the stock was engraved, SSC Unicorn, Dundee. This seemed to establish that the crime had been done in a moment of fury and that the murderer had seized the first weapon which came into his way. The fact that the crime was committed at two in the morning, and yet Peter Carey was fully dressed, suggested that he had an appointment with the murderer which is borne out by the fact that a bottle of rum and two dirty glasses stood upon the table. Yes, said Holmes, I think that both inferences are permissible. So yeah, it goes back and forth like that for another little while, and he, he applauds him for some things and kind of strips him down lightly yeah. for other things, but yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's more it's, it's more, more and more I see it now. It's it's less, there is an affection, but it's not really avuncular. Mm-hmm. It's almost, it's it's like, it's like, a, it's like, a, it's pedagogical almost, you know what I mean? Like, uh, it's, it's a, uh, it's the student master or student tutor kind of dynamic. Hmm. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> you want me to give you some information on some of the places in this story? Cause I found some neat stuff about them. Like Woodman's Lee and, uh, Dundee or for example, uh, Sussex or. 
No, not Dundee. Uh, I've been there a couple of times. It's a great city. Uh, it's a shipbuilding place and it's, you know, on the East Coast. So you, you can get in, um, you know, you, it's got a pretty good harbor and, you know, the, the Tay, I think it's the Tay up there by Dundee. Uh, mm. The mouth of, yeah, it is Tay. <clears throat> anyway, no, I'm not going to talk to you about Dundee. I was going to talk to you actually about the Ratcliffe Highway. Oh. Yeah, if uh, if I may, because it's... Well, maybe not hugely important to the story, but it's it's an interesting little note here. It was very close to where the uh, where, where where the uh, where, where the murder was. That's right. Yeah, um, I thought this was interesting context. Ratcliffe Highway is notorious for organized crime in the nineteenth century. Right. Uh, first of all, that's one thing that I didn't know, but I'll get that out there. Highwaymen, I'm guessing. Uh huh. In the story, though, the environment isn't really developed. It's just kind of mentioned by Holmes, but it is pretty cool that as a disguise, because we learn at the beginning of the story that he's disguising himself a couple of different times, you know, yes. to, or he has five different places, like little spots around the city, and this is one of them. But I thought for the Ratcliffe Highway note that I, I'll just read this to you. Uh, the Ratcliffe Highway murders are one of a number of topics on which Holmes extemporaneously spoke to Watson in a study of Scarlet. Uh, these group, gruesome crimes were described by Thomas de Quincey in his seminal essay on murder considered as one of the fine arts. Ratcliffe Highway is a thoroughfare running parallel to the Thames and was a bustling hub of shops, lodging houses, and saloons catering to sailors and others involved in the shipping trade. Montague Williams, writing in Round London, down east and up west in 1894, wrote about the street's rough-and-tumbled reputation in the 1860s disdainfully called this section of town, quote, a terrible disgrace to London. It would, have, it would have been madness for any respectable woman, or for the matter, any well-dressed man, to proceed thither alone. The police themselves seldom venture there to save in twos and threes, and brutal assaults upon them were frequent occurrence. Williams did concede that the conditions at Ratcliffe Highway had improved slightly by the 1890s, citing a decline in the maritime prosperity, the transfer of shipping activity to new docks lower down on the Thames. Uh, so, you know, you get this idea that Holmes is getting information, even when he's not talking about it, from a rather uh, maritime environment of London that yes. has been well known for its crime. And we've seen him in opium dens before in disguise. And so I just thought that was a neat little note to remind us that although this is a story where Holmes maybe isn't doing a heck of a lot of sweat, he's still, you know, he's still collecting things in his little web. He's going through. He's going through the motions. Uh, yeah. He's yeah. you know he's 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 making uh, what's the word? He's uh, doing his due diligence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that and that includes for him. You know, if you recall, like even in the sign of four, he described he 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 disguises himself as like an old sailor. So it's kind of uh, the same situation there, where he's in disguise and using that to his advantage to solve cases. Um, I'm not sure which how many detectives in real life go out and go out in disguise all the time, pretend to be to be someone that that, that they're not. Um, Hollywood, I think, and and uh, popular culture and, and, and popular fiction, I should say, definitely use this um, tactic a lot. And maybe Sherlock Holmes is kind of the one that started it. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So, what do you think of the investigation itself? Then there's our marks for principles away, and I did kind of jolt jolt in there with a, a bit of environment and. I probably shouldn't have, but insofar as it connected to disguise, I guess it was important. The uh, investigation I liked uh, in terms of the overall story is what I'm trying to say. Like, I liked the overall story, and I liked the, the I, I, I liked uh, the presentation. I liked the, the, the you know the maritime feel to it. You know, the whole kind of 
grizzly sea dog uh, atmosphere that the story had and everything and past crimes coming to haunt people. You know, that's very common trope that Sherlock, Arthur Conan Doyle uses, but he uses it well in this one. And he, I think he uses all his, all of his fortes to, you know, create a really good see a good yarn, I guess you could say. Um, the investigation itself I found is another case of information being withheld and, we're meant to, for, and Watson and Stanley Hopkins are all stupefied, or in, in Hopkins' case, uh, totally off the, you know, in, in the opposite direction. Where we know Sherlock Holmes knows something. We know this guy Nelligan did not freaking Trent did not just be his, his own description. Did not, you know, um, run through uh, carry with the harpoon. Uh, there's just things that just don't make any sense and don't add up. And there's we know there's always something to it. So that's where, where it's a bit predictable. Um, but I did like the fact that, um, it was like an old mate, an old sea, you know, companion of Carrie is the one that brought him down and, and, uh, not, 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 not for the case of because he feels, and I liked also about it, how it wasn't sentimental. He never killed Carrie because Carrie killed, you know, Nelligan's father. He killed Carrie because Carrie, because Carrie's going to kill him. And I, I, I kind of like that honesty about it in, in the story. So that's what kind of made it refreshing. Um, and in, and in the end, you, you know, he, you know, he goes, he goes to jail. You know, uh, our our, our character Pat uh, Patrick Kearns. But at the same time, you know, like uh, it's it it wasn't a sad, but I, I, it wasn't a satisfying kind of like you know, you, you know, we got the bad guy kind of feeling. It was just more like you know, job is done. So there's a very meat and potatoes feeling to the overall the, the whole the whole story, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But okay. I but I but I still really liked it. So I go with the four. I went with the four as well. I thought it was a really readable story. There was a simplicity to it, but all the factors and features work nicely. I thought together, it's it is gruesome though, like, and that kind of makes yes. it that kind of makes it interesting. I felt like that goes into I, the atmosphere. I I think is the gruesomeness of it. I, and uh, yeah. but 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 if you want to you know you know bring it in in context of the investigation, what if you're talking about if you're talking about the the brutality of it, what would you like say to that in terms of how it aids the story and, and whatnot. Well, okay. Uh, what, I, what I would say is, in a certain way, the brutality of this kind of harkens back to the origin of Holmes because you think about the first two novels we got, right? Particularly A Study in Scarlet. There is a lot of kind of blood and, you know, forensic detail to that one. And this is a little refreshing, I felt, because we haven't had blood murder of this, you know, type of vengeful way in in a long time and it it, it made me think it made me kind of kind of um, lean towards I guess or soften towards that that original story again and kind of wish I had a bit more darkness in the homes these days Uh, I liked it I thought it added a lot to the investigation Uh, I also felt you know that that banking involvement and the idea of being pirated on his way to Norway to try to save the people that he had borrowed money from. Yes. I, I, kinda, I, I like the honesty of, of, uh, of his father, you know, and I thought that there was a nice, uh, unfortunate, but a nice twist to that. And yes. uh, I felt like, you know, honor had been restored at the end of this story. Uh, it's an interesting twist with the murderer, but I liked it. I thought it was good. The connections uh, made it fun and it was a good yarn, like, you know, overall. So you could, you could do a lot worse and recommend this one for its story. 
Yeah, I think I think it'd be I think if this was what I think of like if there was a few Sherlock Holmes stories I would tell someone to read just to introduce them to the character. I would I would this would probably be on my recommendation list. Yeah. It just has this gritty kind of salty feeling to it all the way through and it's a good murder it's a classic kind of you know who done it story where it's very typical of a procedural where you have like the crime scene, they investigate it, they see what's going on. The characters are functioning as they you know as they always are, so you get the, you get the very what's the word archetypes of all of Sherlock and Watson in this story. So I, I think it's a good introductory story to Holmes in my opinion. It is. And that's why, and that's why I think it's probably a popular one too. Mm. Well, it'll be interesting to see where this ranks when we go to, when we go to make up lists at the end of all this, like lists for non Holmes aficionados lists, you know, of our favorite characters, our favorite yeah, stories. It's true. It'll, be, it'll be cool to see where this lies. I did want to ask you this though. Um, the note about the CPR, the, the Canadian Pacific railway did you, I, I I struggled with that part of the story. I didn't quite understand what it was getting at. Did you make anything of that, or can you maybe elucidate for me? I would say I think it's more of a historical notice. Um, oh, excuse me. <coughs> oh, bless me. Sorry about that. So they got a tickle. Anyway, um, yeah. So when I saw CPR, I, I automatically because I work for um, TD Direct Investing. Um, I, I know that, uh, that was like, you know, Canadian Pacific Railroad. And the, I think what it is, is that CPR, if you think about it, is 1895. This is the expansion to the West. This is building, you know, into, into British Columbia, like the railroad. So what would be the number one industry right now to have a lot of money that, would, that people would have a great stock in? So <laughs> pun intended, uh, that would be the Canadian Pacific Railway or the American railways. Right. So in this case here, it seems like um, that name itself would be a very lucrative name to mention as a as a stock that would would certificate that would be worth a lot of money. So he, you know Arthur Conan Doyle did his research well there. Okay, and it's I, probably a very common knowledge that CPR stock have that time period was probably a good thing to have because it was expanding and, and booming. So right, okay, that's interesting. You've read into that better than Klinger did. Um, I didn't. Huh. I didn't get a lot of that, and I was thinking. Well, I wasn't thinking like you were. I was just thinking, okay, so this is a stock into which he's invested, but I, I didn't really get why yeah, I, Holmes I, I, went I, on I, about it two or three lines, you know? Yeah, I didn't really... Um, let me just go here to the word mentions. Yeah, so Stanley Hopkins drew from his pocket a drab-covered notebook. The outside was rough and worn, the leaves discolored. On the first page were written the initials J.H.N. and the date 1883. Holmes laid it on the table and examined it in his minute way, while Hopkins and I gazed over each shoulder. On the second page were the printed letters CPR, and then came several sheets of numbers. Another heading was Argentine, another Costa Rica, another Sao Paulo, each with pages of signs and figures after it. What do you make of these? asked Holmes. They appeared to be lists of stock exchange securities. I thought that JHN were the initials of a broker, and that CPR may have been his, you know, been his client. If you're looking at stock exchange securities, wouldn't you know from from, from stocks alone that those initials are probably yeah, referring yeah, to, to, to stock symbols? But I, yeah, anyways, good job there, Hopkins. Mm. Uh, Holmes, Holmes, Holmes has his work cut out. Is all I got to say. Uh, Try Canadian Pacific Railway, says you know said Holmes. Suddenly, Hopkins swore between his teeth and struck his thigh with his clenched hand. What a fool I have been! He cried. Of course it is, as you say. Then JHN are the only initials we have to solve. So JHN doesn't even probably is probably another stock anyways, and this just shows how off the course Hopkins is right now. Yeah, he's focusing on the clues that are that he thinks that are clues, and not the ones that are actually there from observation and uh, and, and 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 inference. He doesn't make guesses; he lets the evidence decide for him and goes to these angles. And that's why he's not as good as a detective as Sherlock Holmes. 
and that's why and that's what you could say is good is good evidence of uh, why the CPR reference, as you said, is important. Overall, though, CPR doesn't really have any significance. I mean, he could have said like. Uh, I don't know, like uh, General Electric or something like that, yeah. GE or something like that. It would have just been coincident. It would, it would, it, it, it would have been just as what's the word? Um, uh, it, it would have worked. It would have worked just as well for 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 the, for the passage. So in this case here, CPR is just you know an example of a stock that's probably doing quite well, and this person has those stock certificates. So mm -hmm. the common reader would know that that's probably good stock certificates to have. So it's more about how the stocks are valuable and how they are a possible motive to, you know, possible uh, motive to the murder. Even though we learn in the end that there's the um, the uh, that those those stocks are more tied to, you know, uh, the the victim's own crimes. Well, just before I leave investigation, I'm not changing my mark for this. I'm just wondering, like. I felt with this story, and it is a criticism, but I just wonder how, or if indeed, it took you out of the story at all, the suspension of disbelief that we're expected to go along with. Like, okay, to me, it was a little bit unbelievable, right, that 12 years passed since the disappearance of Nelligan's father, and yet yes. that, that night that he chooses to visit is the same night that the man who's known or and who's held Carrie's murderous secret decides to act. Like, that's that's a fucking coincidence, and then some. Yes, and how? Yeah, so what Ruby Goldberg machine was activated, you know, to to, to lead to that to those series of confluences, you know? Um, did, did that affect your reading of it? Did it bother you at all? Now that I mentioned it, I didn't really think about it. Sometimes those kind of things I just kind of miss out on. Sometimes, but then after you analyze it and think about it and break things down, you do see those little you know cracks in the uh, in, in I guess in the firmament, so to speak. Hmm. Um, so I kind of agree that uh, yeah, that that is definitely. Now that I think about it, it doesn't quite make sense. Uh, I guess with what you call a plot hole in the modern ter terms, or just a convenience for the sake of uh, <laughs> you know length of story, right? One could almost argue lazy writing. Yes, you could. Uh, but then well, again, you're writing a 20-page <clears throat> short story, you know, if that. And you know, there's certain things with a short story where I had to write a short story before, and unlike other, I find short stories are hard to write because you have to you have to come up with a theme and condense it. And in a way where everything is tied up in 20 pages. And if you have a kind of this big complicated storyline of, you know, of sailors and, and, and stock certificates and people are being accused of murder uh, or being, you know, uh, framed for murder and all this sort of thing and uh, past, you know, sins, those kind of things are difficult to put in a, in a 20 page short story. So yeah, maybe, in the, maybe it was in the editing moment that, he, he, you know, ACD was just like, fuck it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> But we've seen this before, uh, this we have. the suspension of disbelief. I just felt like in this one, yeah, you're really asking me to go along with this. But you know what? I did because, as I've already said, I got a lot of kicks out of the uh, the, the sea, not the seaside, the, the maritime intrigue. So yes. I, I went with it. Um, <clears throat> plus, Good. having read Moby Dick recently, uh, well, a couple of years ago, um, I was all about a harpoonist. Yeah, you like my Queequeg reference, eh? I did, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. I'm like, uh, yeah. The, keep... uh, Sorry. No, I was going to say about uh, Moby Dick, but uh, no, it's done. It's, let's, pass. <laughs> let's, let, let, let's move on. Okay, I'll just give you uh, my rundown of the perpetrators. Uh, Patrick Cairn, uh, you know, he's a cool. Are you, what are you doing? Are you hammering wood over there? No, no, sorry. I just, ha I just had some tick where I was like tapping my pencil. Sorry. No, it's it's quite all right. Uh, it just sounded like you were drilling. I'll trade you my tapping. I'll, I'll, I'll. 
I'll uh, trade you my tapping my pencil for you moving papers around while I'm doing my uh, summary. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> hey, I listened to every word of your summary. That's true. That is true. But it, it, it made me... <laughs> it, does that take you out of the performance art a little bit? Yeah. Pr okay. Pr quid pro quo. Quid pro quo. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll, we'll right. leave it as that. Okay. Well, uh, excuse me for a moment. Okay. <clears throat> Patrick Cairns, harpooner. He held Carrie's murderous secret for a long while, was trying to blackmail him. Uh, this this was cool, you know, and no problem with that. Um, yeah. Peter Carey, captain of the sea urchin, or unicorn, sorry, violent drinker, bit of a pirate who intercepted, I guess it's fair to say that, intercepted Nelligan on his way to Norway, killed him for money. Um, Wife beater. Yeah, I mean, may maybe there's no real... Daughter beater. No single perpetrator here, but we certainly feel a hell of a lot more... Uh, towards Peter Carey as being a villain than Cairns. Um, Cairns is just, after all, looking for a little bit of something, something, right? I picture Car I picture Peter Carey as, as like an evil Captain Haddock, you know, from Tintin. <laughs> I don't know why, I just do. And I picture Nelligan, I picture Tintin for some reason. I, I don't know why, it's just kind of a, a weird kind of crossover in my head. It was interesting. <laughs> I don't know why either. But anyway... <laughs> Uh, Blistering particles. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I don't know that either of these guys deserves a four on their own, but I think together. Yeah, that, and and the fact that Doyle's right. execution of getting us all to think about who's guilty, uh, which of these two is kind of the more complex, the more responsible, the more forgivable. I think that the atmosphere of the crime through the perpetrators is interesting enough to give me a four. So so yeah, I went. Uh, I went four. I went three point five. Uh, okay. I I found that Kerry uh, was you know he was a quite a character, but we've seen quite characters that like 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 this before. So, you know, and and uh, there wasn't really a, uh, another dimension to him besides angry, angry, you know, wife beating sailor, uh, murder and you know murderer. Uh, so I didn't was it wasn't really into him. Karen's I kind of wanted a little bit more of. I wanted a bit more of a sympathy from the author in in, in, in his depiction a little bit. And there, but there really wasn't. It was just kind of just like, yeah, no, he's just a perp, and that, and that, and that, and that's about it. And you know, uh, it did kind of seem the, uh, that Doyle was giving him some remorse, so that's why I give like a point five to that. Um, but at the same time, I just found that as 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 they were sketched out, the perpetrators weren't really, you know, something that we haven't seen before. So I was with, I was a little just, I was a little less generous. I gave it three point five. All right, no problem. Uh, the environment. What about that for you? Would you like? Would you not like? Uh I like the environment. I, I like the cabin for sure. Like the cabin, the the, the crime scene. I, I like the I, I like the kind of like the dial M for murder kind of like one stage kind of aspect to it. You know where it's like all in one all in one all, all in one room most of the time when they're trying to solve the, solve the case. And uh, a lot of the the whole thing revolves around you know that particular cabin and the crime scene and everything going on. And uh, the, Arthur Conan Doyle really seemed to sketch that out. Yeah, and you know for me. And that goes into the brutality that you were mentioning, actually, mm -hmm. the blood, you know, the gore in this story that kind of made it, that, that contributed to the atmosphere. And I just want to go, you know, we're talking about, you know, about, um, you know, like that, you know, the great brindle beard stuck upward in the agony right through his broad breast of steel harpoon had been driven. And the idea of walking in and there's like blue bottle flies everywhere and stuff like that, right? And and it's just that the atmosphere of the cabin itself, you know, just outside of the of the main household and in the woods and stuff, and it creates an eerie kind of demeanor. And then you have the Ratcliffe Highway, you know, on the outside where this could ha people were just driving by where this was happening. This was happening out in the Sussex countryside. 
Um, I, and and you're, connecting the, you're connecting the country, Sussex side, with, you know, maritime images of the North Sea, you know, and, and salt and Norwegian, uh, you know, Norwegian sailors po- possibly, you know, from, you know, coming from Dundee and going over there. And uh, so just, you know, the overall salty attitude of everyone here. There's a great kind of like sea tale feel to the whole atmosphere of all the writing in this story, and that's what I kind of really liked about it. Um, it might be, it might, it might, you could say that this is the um, a maritime Sherlock Holmes story. I guess you, you you could categorize it as, and it does feel that way. That that's the kind of the atmosphere that Arthur Conan Doyle wants to espouse here. But uh, I think he, and I think he, I think he did just that. And if that was his goal, then he carried that off beautifully. So. I give the environment, uh, the environs, uh, four. Okay, uh, I went a shade higher. I went four point five, and I know that's oh, a good. Real, I know that's a high mark, but I just want it to is t- for environs. Yeah, I want to touch on something you're saying though about how so much of the environment is suggested in the story. You're suggested, you know, the swells of the ocean and the darkness during the piracy. You're suggested so much of the gloominess about the wilds and and kind of uh, the Ratcliffe High or the uh, yeah, the, the Ratcliffe Highway is is there as part of a notorious London that we know is part of the story, even though we don't get it all. But, I mean, <clears throat> these things are the backdrop, right? And I know we don't get them page on page, but we get enough of them to understand what yes. what's going on here. There's this, there's this uh, real, like you said, an atmosphere of, of darkness about this. And, you know... The uh, the wheels themselves, a really cool thing. I, I just scribbled down a couple notes here. It's an ancient stretch of forest nearly 40 miles wide, resting between the chalk hills of North and South Downs. It was heavily forested and once served as a center for iron industry, but the area remains one of England's most wooded places. So there's still this mm-hmm. sense of mystery about it. And they also connect like, to, the, to the Saxons, too, I believe, mm-hmm. in, in, this, in, this, in the tale. So that kind of even creates the whole primal, almost like we're out, in the, we're out in the wilderness here, where civilization, you know, despite the little cabin that Carrie builds, is just, you know, not enough, you know, to, for the encroaching wilderness to swallow these people up, you know. So you, you get in those kind of metaphors, too. So that's a good point. Totally. And that's actually what I was going to read on about just before I finish with the environment. Uh, the, the the landscape has kind of been emptied of any resource and you get this this kind of soullessness about it and it's it's perfect place for this cabin and for this man to live, right? Um, alighting at the small wayside station, we drove for some miles through the remains of the widespread woods, which were once part of that great forest, which for so long held the Saxon invaders at bay, the impenetrable weald, for 60 years, the bulwark of Britain. Vast sections of it had been cleared, for this is the seat of the first ironworks of the country, and the trees have been felled to smelt the ore. Now mm. the richer fields of the north have absorbed the trade, and nothing save these ravaged groves and great scars in the earth show the work of the past. Here in a cleaning upon in a clearing upon the green slope of a hill stood a long low stone house, approached by a curving drive running through the fields. Nearer the road and surrounded on three sides by bushes was a small outhouse, one window and the door facing in our direction. It was the scene of the murder. So, you know, you get a good setting, real uh, appropriate for this twisted guy. I, I liked it. I liked the suggestion of the setting that we didn't get maybe in full depiction, but it's we, it's still a character kind of in the story. And the best, the best environments for me are always the ones that support in some way uh, through personification or through some sort of characterization what's going on in the story. And there's a gloom, an evil, a darkness that the setting, yeah. I think, really... It, it's not just a setting. It's it, it's kind of like a character in the story. So I always go high marks with those because I love that stuff. 
it's almost very it's like, it's very Shakespearean, eh? Like uh, like think of like Macbeth, you know, and uh, the the juxtaposition of nature and nature. What's it called? Pathetic fallacy. Yes, right. And yeah. and uh, th- this is one example of, uh, that's used uh, of, of pathetic fallacy that is used uh, quite well in, in this particular tale. All right. So uh, in terms of secondary characters uh, or supporting characters, you do got this guy Hopkins for sure, and he's pretty cool. Um, do you got much you want to say about that? I, I just went 3.5 for them because although he was cool, I didn't think there was a hell of a lot there we were getting. Like I didn't, I was, I saw him as, uh, as, as naive and as the learner and Holmes as the teacher. But, uh, because I considered Carrie and Cairns both kind of in the perpetrators, not so much secondary. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I only got Hopkins to work from really. And Neg- Negligan or Nelligan or whatever his name is. I yeah. went, I went three and a half. I think the, the the vagaries regarding the perpetrators in this particular tale uh, made me give the, the supporting cast a higher mark. I okay. went with perpetrators three point five, as you recall, mm-hmm. but I, I gave the, the supporting cast a four because okay. I find that Karen's and uh, Carrie kind of go into that a little bit, as does Hopkins. And I think overall, like this was a really good cast as a whole. Maybe not a supporting cast, but a cast. And I liked how they all worked together into the story and everything. And there was quite there's a gray area, you know, with a lot of the characters in this story. Maybe with the exception of Carrie, but I just found that uh, there was more supporting characters here than there were actual perpetrators. And uh, I just like that kind of twist and how. Um, you know, like the villain wasn't really a bad guy. He was kind of like a Jefferson Hope kind of character almost. Yeah, that's right. Um, and he is, and that, that's exactly the perpetrator. Right. Exactly. And then you have a terrible, you know, um, evil man who was killed, the asshole victim, right? So, yeah. um, and Nelligan's uh, dad as well. You know, he, he is Nelligan's kind of dad. there in the story as he, a guy he is. who's trying to he, do right. Yeah, maybe 3.5 is a little harsh, but I'll, I'll stick to it because yeah, that's fine. I'll stick to it. So, our total well, scores. You, you, it kind of adds up, so it kind of evens out because I gave 3.5 to the perps, you gave 4 to that, and now I'm giving yeah. 4 to the supporting cast. So, And it won't surprise you to learn that we're only half a mark off. You went 19.5 for the story, and I went 19. <laughs> and when you think about some of the more intricate tales we've had, maybe that haven't earned a mark as high as 19, and because I, I think it needs to be said that 19 is, is moving towards the top end of the stories we would recommend, uh, that's pretty good for The Adventure of Black Peter. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of blackmailers, I mean, we know that uh, our friend Cairns, you know, was trying to was trying to was trying to to, to, to possibly do that with our man uh, Carrie. But uh, we're, I think we're going to deal. We're going to dive right into a really despicable blackmailer. We are, but not before we have our first musical selection of the day. Oh, of course. You've got uh, option one or two. Choose your door. We should have an audience vote. Which door should I go through? No. All right, no. I'll, go through number, I'll go through number one. Door number one. Okay, here you go. A, a good sailing tune. I can't promise it's a whaling tune, but uh, from a Newfoundland group that you know well called The Fables, here's a classic Heave Away. Come get your duds in order, because we're bound to cross the water. Heave away, me jollies, heave away. Come get your duds in order, cause we're bound to leave tomorrow. Heave away, me jolly boys, we're all bound away. Sometimes we're bound for Liverpool, sometimes we're bound for Spain. Heave away, me jollies, heave away. But now we're bound for old St. John's, where all the girls are dancing. Heave away, me jolly boys, we're all bound away. I roam me love a letter. 
We jolly boys, we're all bound away. Sometimes we're bound for Liverpool, sometimes we're bound for Spain. I suppose that the cheerfulness of this tune and the, the, the positive dancing vibe uh, is reminiscent perhaps of a time before Peter Carey and Peter Karen or and uh, Karen's became such dicks and <laughs> such vengeful bastards and pirates and harpoonists that are harpooners that um, <laughs> echoes back to a time when they enjoyed being on the unicorn together. Uh, true. Uh, I would also argue this is probably the victory dance that uh, the, that the, that Mrs. Carey and her daughter are are, 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 are drinking to in his cabin right now. <laughs> That's much better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good one. That's cool. All right. Well, there we go. Yes, as you were saying, talking about blackmailers, talking about assholes. We're moving on to uh, you know one of the one of the best in the. In, in the canon so far, as far as I'm concerned. So many people make so much of Moriarty, who's a bit yes. of a damp squid for me. Um, a damp squid? That's not the expression. Damp, well, a, a damp squib. Thank you very much. Well, maybe he's a damp squid as well. Who knows? Uh, yeah, this guy, Charles Augustus Milverton. I'll get into a plot summary just as soon as you shoot off some publication info. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just want to say, yeah, too, like this is he, uh, Mil- Milverton's one of my favorite Sherlock Holmes vi- vi- villains. I read the story a long time ago, or parts of it, actually. And I just want to say is like, I, I'm, I'm a fan of the of definitely like the earlier episodes of the Sherlock BBC series. But I have to say that uh, um, Hans Mikkelsen did an incredible job playing Milverton in uh, in the third in one of the better season episodes of in one of the uh, one of the later episodes of Sherlock the series if you have if you haven't seen the last vow um his Mil- his his version of Milverton is just a scummy piece of garbage and he does it so well yeah he really does yeah like you want to punch it's him in the one. face it is yeah one. one of the last good ones of that series in my personal opinion Sorry to the folks at home, but that's my view. But moving onwards, so uh, Augustus Milverton, uh, the story, the adventure of Charles Augustus Milverton, uh, was first published in The Strand in March 1904. So it was uh, subsequent, the next month after our, our Adventures of Black Peter. Um, seems that he's putting these out every month, so he, I guess he has some kind of deadline he has to make each time. Or do you think does does he did he have like the outlines already and it was writing them all like in one big. <clears throat> blur you know well what he did is for these stories particularly he submitted them in a group so they were written uh, you know within a couple of months and then sent to the editor so that they would kind of have them on slow drip uh, uh, drip feed so he kind of wrote basically like a, a, a large a large anthology uh, novel and then they and then and then afterwards the editors would just like churn them out each month well yeah i mean i'm reading his autobiography as we go along with this and uh, the the stories here are described as ones that he had finished and sent out so that instead of doing one by one by one like like you would think of a daily journalist he's writing them yeah. in chunks and giving them to them and they can publish yeah. them a couple of months in advance you know Yeah it's not like a, like if you look you know if you go if you look at like the um the Marvel method you know of like uh Lee and Kirby kind of put out where they have like one story coming each month, but they plan out the storylines, but they still had to, you know, ink and do everything in that span of month for each issue. So um, it's, it's in this case here, Arthur Conan Doyle had his own sort of um, outline or all the, or he wrote well, not outline, but he, he knew what he wanted to tell all the stories that he wanted to tell. And then he wrote them all and then he presented them to the publisher 
and then the publisher, you know, just released each story, uh, you know, for, for each month, right? So that he was never behind and he was always able to make those in, so that they would have a story for each, for each issue of The Strand. And of course, for Harper's Bazaar. Interestingly, it looks like The Strand is beating Harper's Bazaar to the punch uh, when, 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 when it comes to the publication of these stories. What do you mean Harper's Bazaar? You said that last episode too. You're talking about Collier's. Colliers, sorry, I don't know where yeah. Harper's Bazaar is coming from. I, th- I thought Harper's Bazaar was like uh, English. It? It's an English paper, isn't it? It's an English magazine. Well, I don't even know. I don't know what its state is right now. But 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 Colliers is one of the states. Yeah, Colliers is yes. what he was. Yeah, when he when yeah. he started publishing in America. But I'm finding, yeah, I couldn't find any publication information on Colliers. Uh, well, I did. This was uh, published in March 1904 in Colliers. Oh, so the same month. Interesting. Yeah, well, yeah, the April edition of The Strand and March in Collier's, so... Ah, uh, okay, I got you. I, I don't know what, what week it was in Collier's, but uh, one of the weeks. But, of course, you know, the way magazines are published a month ahead, right? You can buy the you can buy the, the February edition today or the March edition probably today, right? Part of me wants to... Part of me wants to just, you know, just dismiss, you know, the relevance of that as pure, mere minutia. But I have a feeling Sherlock Holmes wouldn't be too happy with me, like avoiding, you know, ignoring certain details. Anyways, uh, yeah. So April nineteen oh four was the publication date in the Strand. Originally in March in Collier's before Americans apparently still having the leg up on the English when it comes to their Sherlock Holmes releases. But no, this is what I'm trying to say. They didn't have a leg up because Collier's was a weekly magazine and the Strand was a monthly and so what you get like this is what i'm trying to say if, if you went to the the shop today to buy a magazine it would be the month dated ahead of what you're currently buying right oh i see because you're getting a weekly magazine the stories are already released i see what you mean okay yeah, yeah. so they're basically hitting the same time uh, i understand okay well Moving forward, then, uh, let's look at the people of Goodreads had to say about the Please. adventures of Charles Augustus Milverton. Five stars should be essential reading, period. There's Sherlock and Watson, of course. There's blackmail, unfortunate letters, beautiful women, and predatory villainous greed. Oh, and there's a small revolver of justice, but SH refuses to assist Lestrade. Like I said, five stars. It's fun to see how Sherlock and Watson ended up meeting each other and seeing the first case they worked on together. Okay, what? I don't understand. I don't understand this at all. <laughs> no, neither do I. Yeah, it's a picture of some cute girl uh, making the comment. Uh, maybe I, 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 I don't know. Maybe she was like talking to the stories overall after watching. Maybe she's she's one of those cumber bitches. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> yeah, my wife. My wife is one of them. So <laughs> she's she's reading all this like uh, this fan fiction stuff. She likes all the fan fiction stuff, right? Like she oh. reads. Oh, like the uh, slash stuff with her and with John with John and stuff like that. Well, she claims it's not, but we both know that it is. <laughs> but no, I mean she she is into like you know like I, I she said to me the other night it was over Christmas holiday. She goes, "Isn't it ironic how like you you and Josh are doing this you're doing this series where you're reading all the source material and I'm just accessing the the, the fiction." Like she hasn't read any of these yet, and. She's barely she's barely interested in what we're doing, but she's accessing because it's like it's it's a spin off the TV show and she likes the two actors on the TV show. So, yeah, you know, God knows what she's doing when she's upstairs, but I'd rather not think about it. <laughs> we, we, we should get her on the show sometime to present some uh, fan fiction uh, stories or whatever, just for the for the lark. Yeah, um, we probably should. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I'll ask her. See what she said. <laughs> she's very uh, interested in Sherlock Holmes, just not the real Sherlock Holmes. Okay, very good, very good, very good. Um, moving forward, uh, one person said good, by by the way. 
Uh, mm. Plot twist. Loved it. This is probably my favorite story of so far, mostly because it's unique and shows more personality than wit. Okay. Okay. The Adventures of Sherlock, of, of, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Cool. Yeah, so there wasn't a... You got the impression, though, if you, if you look overlook all of the Goodreads quotes, people really enjoyed this story. Yeah, um, okay. Mm. Well, let's see, let's see if we can figure out why. <clears throat> so, The Adventure of Charles Augustus Milverton. Few are the Sherlock Holmes stories where Watson cuts out the middleman to start mid-adventure, or indeed where Holmes' own curiosity or habit is the motivating incident for plot. But here, Doyle offers up a slight change to form, and the story gets off the ground after only two short paragraphs of introduction. Holmes is not looking forward to his evening appointment. His spidey sense, described by Doyle as a, quote, creeping, shrinking sensation, is on full alert as he prepares for Charles Augustus Milverton to arrive for a 6.30 appointment at Baker Street. Described by Holmes as, quote, the worst man in London, the king of all the blackmailers, end quote, Milverton is a notorious collector of information, a data miner of the highest order and lowest character. We learn that Holmes is acting on behalf of his illustrious client, Lady Eva Blackwell, who's caught in one of Milverton's scandalous webs. The situation's actually fairly straightforward as far as our 31 Sherlock cases have gone so far. Milverton has in his possession a number of imprudent letters between the lady and a young squire, today's equivalent, we imagine, of illicit snapshots or sexts shared between improper partners. He refuses to let them go at a reasonable price and is instead extorting what he can from Lady Eva, who is desperate for the situation to be resolved before her marriage to the upstanding Earl of Dovencourt. Enter Sherlock. Acting as a broker, Holmes intends to lower the sale price for the letters, but knows that his chances are slim with Milverton. The meeting doesn't go well for Holmes. Milverton knows that Lady Blackwell can't pay the ridiculous £7,000 he's charging, so he intends to bankrupt her socially and family connections as well, will be hit. Additionally, by making an example out of her, his other victims will know that he can go the distance with threats so not to bend costs. Like a true slug, he refuses to move on the price, and Holmes sloppily plays one of his poorest cards so far in the canon, a surprise jump attack before properly reading his opponent. Milverton preps a gun from his pocket, and out uh, <clears throat> and our dynamic duo are disarmed pretty quickly. The blackmailer leaves, and all is gloomy again. Holmes has failed his client and is up against the ticking clock. Now here's where the suspension of disbelief really kicks in. Holmes reveals to Watson that he's succeeded in acquiring the promise of marriage from Milverton's <laughs> housekeeper. Yeah, for real. Apart from the conundrum of having Sherlock accept this ropey job in the first place, Doyle also asks us to believe that, one, a man who holds a Gringotts heavy repository of personal secrets in his house could be so offhand about his housekeeper's behavior, and two, that the housing staff themselves could be so fatuous. Regardless, Holmes reveals to Watson that he's worked his magic on Sweet Agatha by disguising himself as Escott, the plumber. <laughs> Fuck me. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. Brushing the girl off as collateral damage in this sporting duel between himself and Milverton, Sherlock has been using the brief tryst, and I mean really brief, to get the lay of the ground around Hampstead Heath. The next, uh, read only, step in Holmes's plan is to break into Jabba the Milverton's house and crack the safe where all of London's top secrets are held. Channeling his inner Jean-Paul Gaultier, Watson designed... <laughs> he designs two ma... I can't fucking read this sentence. Not because it's funny, but because of what it makes me think of in this story. He designs two masks that will conceal their identities. The genius sidekick fashions two strips of black silk to cover their faces. That's it. No Jack Pierce or Rick Baker movie magic here, folks. Just no. two pieces of silk that blow freely in the wind. 
So anyway, like Sherlock should, should have would have come up something with a bit more efficient than that. Anyway, as it turns out, they don't really need the crappy disguises because after shortly or <clears throat> shortly after gaining access to Milverton's house and starting work on the safe, sounds are heard outside the antechamber, and the two dive behind a curtain anyway. Watson's narration turns a little harlequin at points during this denouement, <laughs> noting the excitement in his chest for doing something naughty, the palpitations of his heart, <laughs> the cool, assuring confidence of his mentor, and the firm grasp of his lover's hand behind the curtain. Okay, well, it doesn't quite go it doesn't quite go to a five minutes in the closet level with Sherlock, but it almost does. Slash conspirators uh, five minutes in heaven. Uh, slash conspirators really need no look no further than this tale for their best source material wellspring of potential from the canon. Never, nevertheless, Watson is saved from his pubescent excitement by a twist of fate that keeps him quiet behind the curtains and peeping into the room. The steps heard belonged to Milverton himself, who did not go to bed on time like a good boy, but instead stayed awake to meet a mystery lady who entered the scene. The identity of this lady isn't revealed, because like our heroes, she too is dressed to kill in disguise. Only in her case, she really does kill. Holmes and Watson watch her pump lead into Milverton after some weighty karma talk, and then flee the scene. They too up and run, but not before Holmes sets fire to the contents of Milverton's safe, ostensibly freeing many other files from the grisly web of bribery and extortion the now-expired CSM-like creep had spun around London. The <laughs> CSM. The duo escaped the scene in unbelievable fashion, nearly getting caught, but thank goodness for those black strips of silk. When Lestrade comes calling the next morning, Holmes refuses to cooperate in apprehending Milverton, but he also plays a high moral card. Fate, he reckons, had handed a, f a pretty hideous criminal his just desserts, so why not just let bygones be bygones? He also knows that Lestrade is incapable of solving this, so yeah. Lestrade accepts, to an extent, and it's just as well that he's not clever to suspect Holmes, because Sherlock and Watson are probably shitting themselves. Anyway, Doyle closes shop on the story by gesturing obscurely to the identity of the mystery woman when Holmes leads Watson across to Regent Circus, yeah. where, post where posters of the day's top celebrities and performers adorn the shops. The two share a chuckle, but the joke is completely wasted on us, the reader, who lack the virtual reality to look over their shoulders. <laughs> exactly. Um, that was really good. Awesome. Uh, but I was wondering too, like who was Arthur Conan Doyle trying to suggest who that lady was? Some like member of the royal family or something like that, or no idea, man. I haven't been yeah. able to. Of course, you know, there's all kinds of notes in here that say, "Oh, this is Doyle saying that." Um, what's her face from the uh, the first story we read? What's her name? The one who, uh, 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 Irene Adler. Or? Yeah, yeah, like Irene Adler or all kinds of nonsense was suggested. But no, the, the annotations don't actually reveal anything. Revealing, just, it was just meant to, just meant to be like a, a public figure, or a celebrity of in that world, basically. Well, I'm just going to look through my notes here. I don't think I recalled anything about uh, who this person is. Da -da 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 -da. Hmm. There's some speculation. Do you want? I mean, when we get to it, I can read the notes. I got them made here. Yeah. Okay. If you're interested, I'll read it. But it's not as enlightening as you might be hoping. I think we can uh, make our own uh, our own guesses as well as the uh, other readers too all right well let's let's fire into this one um we're a little behind our time so let's see if we can pick up the pace to get through our remaining two stories uh, will do so the principles here in this case um overall i gave the principles 4.5 in this particular tale I thought this was Holmes on, you know, this was Holmes at his best in this story. Even though there is some probable, you know, uh, suspenders of disbelief 
uh, that ha- you know that have to to, to go to, we have, that we have to go along with here in this story. Um, I just found Holmes really fun in this story, and I and I liked his sense of justice. Uh, you know that even that he went to a gray area, you know, to help bring down Milverton, and 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 of course even the narrative does, and this is a, a kind of remove um, let's, uh, Milverton out of play uh, conveniently in, in the end, which which doesn't lay a finger on Watson or Holmes, um, so there's no moral culpability on them going into the gray, so that's not really explored. But um, I do feel though that um, this was definitely a really good Sherlock Holmes tale. I, I gotta, I gotta take, I gotta take up something you're saying because I don't, I don't quite agree with you describing it as in the gray. I think the way he treats Agatha here and the way that we're meant to go along with this misogyny, I, I really find this kind of takes me out of it a bit. Like I don't respect him for what he's doing here. Uh, I, I understand what he's doing and I know he's doing something underhanded and he's and and you know I, I, I get that, but this a guy like Holmes, like he, he completely, he completely takes this woman out and then the only justification he offers afterwards is that oh well you know i had a rival for her heart so i'm sure she'll just land with that guy afterwards so yeah it's true it's it's really misogynistic this story and i think it reflects maybe and okay you know what for the character of holmes i can buy it because he does have that sort of high functioning autism that that can make me believe that he doesn't care empathetically about other people and their feelings so okay i get that i can appreciate that but i think doyle this is very revealing of doyle and maybe the the victorian society at large and how these lower class women were were, were viewed oh i'm not surprised at all and i'm going to say is that when i was talking about the gray area i wasn't really talking about you know sherlock's tryst with agatha I'm more okay, talking. Sorry. I'm more talking about you know the idea of you have to fight fire with fire to bring down someone like Milverton. Yes, threats okay. and I persuasiveness do yeah. not work to bring this man down. So Holmes, you know, had to go outside of the usual book and he had to break into a house. He had to, um, uh, you know, he witnessed a murder and he had to cover it up. Like he's very culpable in this whole situation in terms of like uh, legality. And this is this is a show that he is willing to cross that line in the matters of justice. So he's more of a moral justice seeker as opposed to like I guess a literal justice seeker in terms of the law and, and the government. So it's kind of think... almost like an anarchic figure in this way. And I liked how it presented him in that way. Now I now I'm considering it. I'm kind of going from a four point five to a four uh, based on the fact that this gray area isn't quite explored enough for me in the story. I also feel that um yeah you know you're now bringing up too about other things about the character that and to me gives more illumination to the character uh the idea of him you know like just leaving agatha in the wind you know like uh, down here it's like a victorian version of super mario brothers only mario leaves princess peach in the wind i bring up mario brothers because he disguises a plumber mm-hmm. i just thought, i like I just, that that's I just very good. That funny you know but then you know then but, but, but you know he leaves princess peach in the wind and then him and then Watson and him, Mario and Luigi, you know, are behind the curtain. Then watching, you know, like Samus Aran take down Mother Brain, uh, Mother Brain mm. being Milverton, right? So it's just funny how like someone does the work for them in, in this story, and they don't really a- have anything. It's like that argument with like Raiders of the Lost Ark, where if you think about it, Indiana Jones does nothing through that yeah, whole he movie. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't change the events of anything. Yeah. Nothing at all, because then eventually those Nazis are going to open the Ark, and those and evil spirits are going to come out and kill them all. I so remember really, us talking about this before in with respect to one of these stories, and that exact analogy came up. And I remember then we talked about the Big Bang Theory episode. Which it's, was built. It's, it's Sheldon, yeah, exactly. It's the Sheldon theory, right? But, you know, I, 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 gotta, I don't think we can move away from this point yet, because I think as a modern reader 
particularly and and you know i think that a modern reader a feminist reader maybe yeah would really be challenged with this story in a way yes. that they haven't been if you're a if you're a female or a male who admires Holmes for his kind of egalitarianism and his sort of like, yeah, everybody's expendable, but nobody's expendable type thing if they're in the right, then I find the way he treats Agatha really challenging here for me because why is it that his, and I get the idea of the duel between him and Milverton, but let's just shelf that for a second. Yeah, in his post-sexual harassment culture, yeah, yeah, it definitely uh, speaks ill of his character in, 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 in a way. But why, why even is the happiness and dignity of, of the housemaid worth less to him than the reputation of an indiscreet female client? Like, I, 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 I get that... A wealthy indiscreet... Yeah, well, like, well somewhat wealthy. Agatha, she's like a young debutante, right? So Well, she's less... Agatha's less socially valuable than yes. Lady Eva. But the question from today, you know, like that I've come into this with, you know, it, it begs to be asked, like, why, why to Holmes can't he find... Like, he must just really not rate... Like, he, we, I mean, he's just... He's a prick, basically. He's an upper-class prick in this story. Oh, he is, yeah. And that's why I found... Like, I, I like the faucet of this additional faucet of his character in this is that um, it shows that he's still not quite socially there. And he has a lot of, uh, you know, despite well, being a, a, a okay. you know, a, a, a calculating machine when it comes to the war on crime, he still has a lot of his uh, hang-ups. But is that the way? That's not the way Doyle wrote him, Josh. That's, no, that's, that's the way that's, we're reading him. That's the way I mean, we're reading him. Yes, that's a, true. a contemporary a contemporary reader is going to pick up this story in the Strand or in Colliers and think, yeah, that I can totally see. I'm, I'm like, I'm, actually, I'm not even paying attention as a contemporary reader to what happens to Agatha because she's worthless. And I think yes. this makes the story really interesting. You know? Yes. I and I find that Holmes in this story offers a lot that we can we we can challenge and we can criticize. And so yes. I'm not. You know, in criticizing Holmes in the story, I'm I'm saying something good about it as a story for modern readers because you couldn't have a debate with it. Meanwhile, Watson seems to uh, have, as you said, Harlequin moments. Oh, so... he's he is saccharine in this story. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's pretty much like um, uh, I, I I don't know, like some sort of I'm trying to think of some kind of. Sherlock Holmes might have well have just brought another gun with him, and as opposed, or, or, or a gun with him when he broke in. He didn't really yeah. need Watson for the scenario at all, unless he wanted Watson to throw a cherry bomb or or, or something. <laughs> yeah. No, I, you know what I think Watson could have been useful here for, and I'm kind of surprised I didn't get much of it. Is like, you know, <clears throat> in a parallel universe, maybe if he's escaping, Holmes just pushes Watson into the room and then runs away. <laughs> And leaves him to it, you know, because he's he's growing more and more. Uh, I won't say discordant, but he's certainly growing more and more dickish towards Watson. Like, there's not a great friendship here, there were as there was in the first few stories, and that's, uh, I know, I'm not, I'm not in the, interested in the slash elements at all. Uh, but there, there's 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 something about their friendship that that really that I admire, and I just don't get a lot of that in these stories. And I yeah. think maybe I think maybe the steam is running out of Doyle. He's publishing uh, he's publishing icons now, not relationships, because they are so yes. established that he feels my readers don't need it. And you know, I, I don't like the sort of the the, the the Harlequin overtones. I think that's a little silly. But maybe that's Watson, the character, coming out and saying, "Oh, you know, here I am behind the curtain, and my friend is finally giving me some attention. He's finally doing something that isn't." You know, so dickish, but I don't know. 
I, I don't understand where Doyle's head was when he was writing Watson at this time because Watson is becoming stupid. He's becoming, he's becoming, and I'm going to talk about it in a different uh, plot summary too. He's becoming like uh, an oaf, and I, I yeah, don't, I don't it, know it what's is. going on. It's true. The first two I, I found like in the, in the novels so far, and in like the first two volumes, like the um, adventures and the memoir and the mem- and the memoirs of uh, Sherlock Holmes, I found that um, Watson was definitely a stronger character for sure. Well, and think about Baskerville, Wat- right? I mean, yeah, Baskerville for sure. We're only a couple of years away from that, and maybe not even two years from that. And I mean, he he's such an agent in that story, and he's so engaging in that story. And now he's just like a, he's just a turd, like. He, it's yeah. like Doyle doesn't even care. And I think there's something in that. You know, he's getting tired with these stories. Last episode, we talked about the letter he wrote to his publisher where he was like, look, criticize the stories if you want, but you have to understand a certain amount of repetition is going to start happening here. So I, I get it, but I don't like it. And I can't, I, I can't go forward true. for the principles because there's no principles. There's one principle. Holmes is great, and he's, but he's not great at the same time. I think for, yeah. for me, he's a bit too generous, and uh, I, I get what you're saying, the greys, and I like the fact that he digs deep and dirty to take on a deep and dirty guy, yeah. but I think, you know, the the, the, uh, what's the friendly fire or the, uh, the close casualties of this story are a little disrespectful, <clears throat> even for a guy that's digging deep, and I don't like, I don't like it socially, I, I, I don't like it very much for Holmes, so... That makes him interesting in the story, but it doesn't make him uh, admiring. And Watson is a knob, so I'm just going three. <laughs> I'm just going three overall. Okay, uh, I, 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 I'm going to go take myself down to a more reasonable four um, in, in this particular case. So I'll, I'll I'll stay at that. I'll also add too is that it just seems like as you there's this corporate feel to some of the stories in the Return of Sherlock Holmes like a collect, collection. It's like Arthur Conan Doyle knows people want Sherlock Holmes, and that's who, and that's who, that, and that's who he gives them. He gives them Sherlock Holmes, and gives them a, gives them a, like a, a rudimentary case to solve, and everything like that, right? Yeah. And he has some fun with some of his villains. I can see that happening, but uh, Watson is just, is just, he's just not interested in writing his character at all right now. Maybe there's a time of his life. Maybe there's just time in his life right now where he, maybe he doesn't have any friends at the moment. He has, he's, been, he's been on an affair or two lately. So maybe he's lost friends and he's just not feeling that camaraderie anymore or he's isolated from that. I don't know exactly, but there's definitely something in his writing that just doesn't uh, pop with that old dynamic anymore. Okay, so the investigation, as we've already said, is pretty straightforward. Uh, I like the straightforwardness of the investigation. I do yes. like the involvement of something simple, something like uh, Keystone Cops. You know, you got a guy, you got guys that just doing something simple and against the rules. They're breaking into a home to collect, you know, it's, it's like committing a crime to protect. It's like a Batman type thing, you know, we got going on here. And I like that. I like the, the dark element of, of bending the rules to have a greater good. I think that's okay. Um, I, I like the disguise. I think it's clever. I think it's funny. I think it's it, it, it works, but I don't like the impact on the character of Agatha and how expendable she is, I do have a problem with that. And I'm surprised that I have a problem with that because I just went through a series of, uh, uh, you know, James Bond novels with you last year where there were women treated like shit all the time. But this one really hit me for some reason. I think because maybe the women in the Bond stories had a little bit more agency uh, with respect to their plots. You know, here, she's just she's just such a minor character that's taken advantage of. And that, that bothered me a bit. I can't, I can't get away from it. So... Uh, it's the story's well written. There's fun. It's quick. It, it, it's convenient. 
there's more suspension of disbelief, like I said, in this whole fucking engagement to Agatha. Um, and but hey, yeah, it's a good story. Um, this, the investigation it, isn't the highlight for me, though. I went three point five overall. You know, I actually really, really liked this particular story in the investigation. I, I like the story overall. Um, I went with a four. Okay. Um, I was going to give it 4.5. I would have, but I do agree with you that Agatha being left out and not really considered at the end and just like a note saying, oh, she'll find another love. There was a, there was already a, a rival for her affections anyways, you know? Well, you know, and, this this could have been a novel. We said this about other ones, right? That you yes. know, they're big enough that in story they could have been a novel. I would have loved for Agatha. Agatha can remain stupid. She can remain naive. She can remain lower class. But why not give her some speaking parts? Why not make this a bit of a longer story? Have Agatha actually introduce Holmes to her master because let's face it that would probably have to happen at some point we're going to need a scene where where he's aware that his housekeeper is fucking engaged like he yes. needs to know that you know Milverton will need to know that Agatha is soon going to be leaving his employ why not have some tension between a disguised Holmes and Milverton in Milverton's home or perhaps upon the yes. grounds of Hampstead Heath where the story is set like why not make this a bit bigger so that Agatha has a role and as as like uh, and a better so that that Holmes gets access to the home the property through her like I think for her role there's a lot of unwritten scenes that that could have been that could have been engendered here. Agatha is really the barb of this story, if you think about it. I'm referring to, like, Stranger Things, where uh, a lot in the first season, like, uh, Nancy's friend, um, Barb, just disappears and no one find- and, and dies alone and no one ever finds her body or, 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 or what have you. And there was a big uproar with a lot of people about that. And uh, because she was, like, this overweight kind of, like, possible lesbian character, and there was this whole, like online movement uh, about how she was tre- her character was treated shabbily you know and mm-hmm. there was a lot of people really upset about it um, but in your case it's more justified in my opinion because um, it's something that our our, 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 our hero in the story is uh, is doing something that um, you, you know that he normally doesn't do and not only that we're supposed to believe you know that all of a sudden he's a charmer of ladies like yeah. I, I, I I don't understand how well, um, that's, that's Sherlock, a good point. Sherlock Holmes even though with all his disguises and whatever accents mm-hmm. he puts on I can't see him as someone of his uh, is bearing uh, you know having something in common with like some some with some plain girl like how you know yeah that's an excellent uh, observation you're with making with some with some lower class girl like what would they have in common what would they talk about well how you know, would he, how Holmes, would he be able to perform like, his was, way out of it that too, but it's just it's just looking at you know having a conversation between the two of them like intimate moments or whatever, and she's just like, why are you falling asleep while I'm talking to you? Because you because know, because you know that he'd be bored out of his freaking mind. Like, I mean, he falls asleep you know in his chair in his study when he's listening to the, to the clients that he that uh, he doesn't care about until you know they tell him something interesting, right? So I mean, mm-hmm. I just don't see how she would have been interested in him or even engaged. So there's a lot of suspension disbelief in the story more so than I think about it. Yeah, you're uh, right. And there's a, there's an annotation here in the Klinger edition I'm reading about uh, Holmes in the sack and kind of the suggestion of him being a convincing lover because he would need to be and he would almost certainly have had to have slept with Agatha, you know. Really? Oh, you don't yeah. think Victorian you don't you don't think Victorian Mores would have played play, would have played a role here and he probably wouldn't have waited until, you know, uh, wedding night consummation or He's a fucking plumber. <laughs> like I'm sorry, but he's as, you know, he's maybe just he a step up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's just he's just up the pipe, buddy. In, in a way, if you think about it, the BBC version where that same I think it was a, it, he was he was still dating that like 
girl or whatever, and he was using her to get information about Milverton because she worked for him, if I wasn't mistaken. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of a similar, similar, similar parallel there. Um, but I just want to say about overall about the story and the investigation. You know, I liked how the investigation was good. I liked how you know uh, Milverton got you know double tapped and uh, and then you know ends up getting probably a stiletto into his Sorry. eye um, because she does stamp on his face. I like that little detail. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I found this story is almost like more than more I think about it now. It's like Arthur Conan Doyle is telling his rich readers that. You know what? Those little scandals that you have, you can get away with those because there's always going to be someone who, who, you know, guys like these people who blackmail you all the time. This is when they get their comeuppance. You know what I mean? Like this is a very like uh, a story that seems very tailored to like the upper class readers of Sherlock Holmes to really enjoy. I think it's like he right. was, was trying to reach that audience again. Going, you know, you know, like we're we're, we're heading back into like, um, uh, what 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 is it called? Um, the the uh, the 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 woman, you know, we're going back to uh, Irene Adler, right? We're going to back to us to a scandal in in uh, in, uh, in in Bohemia, uh, with this upper class kind of you know justice that's that's, that, that's required here. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't disagree with you. I think we're actually doing a good job here on our investigation marks. I, I'm, I mean, I went three five, you went four. I think, yeah. in the, I think in the spirit of brevity, we move on. But I would yeah. just, I would just like to to kind of footnote what what we've been saying here, um, <clears throat> or underline it with this comment that although I'm not hugely fond of what I'm seeing in the story and the way Holmes is treating Agatha, as we've already went through, this remains a story that I would definitely recommend because it gets a great conversation going, and we haven't had a lot of stories that have had this type of energetic conversation, the idea of gender roles. Like we haven't had a neat modern story to, or sorry, a story that we can look at through a modern lens quite as critically as this. So I would recommend it all the same. Absolutely. So moving on to our perps, I mean, obviously Milverton, uh, I think Milverton's, I don't don't think he's a five. I think he's a four. Um, I really liked his, I, I, I liked his villainy and he was sleazy as fuck and, you know, like that was great and, you know, uh, I found he was more, he was a much better villain than Moriarty in my opinion, uh, mostly because he had more, you know, he had more, you know, word, uh, ink time, <laughs> I guess mm. you could say, than Moriarty. So I, I thought he stood out as one of the great Sherlock Holmes villains, but I, I was trying to find, there was some motive for the way that he was acting, you know, the way that he was, you know, and. I kind of wanted, you know, like a last minute rant from him or something or some kind of way to show that he, you know, why, why is he the way that he is? He's just some, like some, some, some demon that just crawled up from the underworld, you know, and, and just, uh, making, um, you know, shambles of the aristocracy. Like, is this a class war for him personally? Was he the bastard of some rich woman or something? Like, you know, like there's, I wish there was kind of a background to his character. So I found a lot that made a lot of his actions to me kind of seem what's the word, uh, over the top evil. And I, I, and I wasn't trying to, uh, and I just found that like, I, I was trying to find the reasons why he was, and I was, I was hoping the writing would show me that, but I didn't quite get that. So yeah. I, I, I didn't, uh, I love the I love the villain, but I didn't, I wasn't like overwhelmed, uh, with like, wow, this is a great, 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 great villain. Uh, so I, I, I give him a four. That's a good assessment of him. And I'm not far away from you. Uh, I did read it Uh, I read him perhaps a little bit differently, broad spectrum than you did. I think that uh, I I think that Milverton is a correction. I think he's Doyle's correction on 
on Moriarty because <laughs> we hear about Moriarty's, you know, web of villainy and he has connections here, but we don't get any specifics about what this guy does, Moriarty. We don't get any information on how he uh, trains, how he recruits. We're just told that he's this massive kingpin-like figure. But here we've got a guy in Milverton that we do learn a little bit about, at least in terms of how he collects his information and what he does with it in terms of extortion. I, I think we're getting here a more interesting character that for a spin-off or for or for like a mythology would have better legs than Moriarty. I mm. like Milverton a lot. I like the way that his smoking jacket and his kind of uh, slippers just speak for him at the end of this. I like the way that he comes prepared with a gun that tells us something about him. Uh, he's not interested in phrenology. He doesn't care about Holmes's, you know, mental or skull size or anything like that. He's just far more interested in making Holmes understand. Because let's face it, Milverton would know who Holmes is. And maybe part of the impetus here that Holmes has in taking him down is in his own defense and preservation of information, you know, his own security. Yes. And so... I, I think there's a lot of really cool stuff with Milverton. I agree with what you're saying, that we don't get all the light on him. And ultimately, he is a bit of a wasted creation because we never come back to him. But as no. as a one-off villain, a perpetrator, the impact he has on our principal character cannot be understated. He is very, very emotionally drawn to Milverton. And, you know, when that first meeting at, at Baker Street doesn't go well, Holmes drops into despair. And, you know... They, then the actually this goes Sorry? to the tactic of trying to and he actively goes into the tactic if you think about it of just through maybe it, it's a it's a point on what you were saying earlier about the misogyny of the story Sherlock Holmes is so put in despair and so challenged by Milverton that you know he went to that low depths of you know like of something that maybe because he seems like a nice guy in his own way you know uh, but this is very unchivalrous of what he did with Agatha and it's just so that he he could get back at um, at Milverton, right? He was that he was or he was a, she was a means to an end, so that he would be able to foil Mil Milverton in some capacity, and that was his ultimate goal. And 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 uh, Milverton was such a good villain and so a challenge for Sherlock Holmes that it made him cross that line into the gray. Yeah, and you know, yes, yeah, exactly. And further to that, the, the, his collection of of indiscretion, Milverton's, you know, uh, I mean, it is entirely possible, as he says that. He could have eight to ten cases. It's not that really exaggeratory because, or exaggerating because, you know, private telephones are unavailable. Public telephones are, but private telephones at this time are unavailable. So secret lovers were often exchanging notes, right, via their servants, particularly in the higher class, like deliver this to so-and-so, deliver this to so-and-so, despite the risk of exposure. So I find him a very believable uh, data miner because he could just intercept the servants of high, you know, high class uh, debutantes or uh, kings or princes or whatever, you know, I see that there's a lot of reality to this guy as, and I think, let's face it, in today's climate of data mining and online safety or not safety, these figures lurk, these people exist. This is what tabloids are all about. I thought Milverton was really forward thinking for Doyle as a character. And I know that there are obvious examples in every epoch of history of people like him, but he he's a modern scumbag, and I like yes. him. I think he communicates well off the page. I also like the idea of his home, and maybe this is getting into the environs a bit, but he lives in Hampstead Heath, which is a rather affluent part of London. It, in fact, it's a municipality of its own, a suburb in the south, and 
you know, I, I like the idea of him just kind of going back like a spider does to the edge of the web at the end of the day and then going back to the center of London to collect and then going back to the... Right. Like, I love yeah. this, the idea of him actually being located outside of London. And so that that's quite cool. Uh, you know, it's cool. Overall, I really liked uh, Milverton. I went 4.5. And just to skip ahead okay. with, the, with the environs, um, I went to a 4 for the environs because we get that... The, the affluence of Hampstead and so, so you know hmm. the description really briefly like you know we get the artists environments and it's a very literary place where crowd and philosophers hang out in the cafes you know we're given that kind of hmm. insight it's, it is surface level but we're given it there in the story and then of course you've got Milverton's home itself and and the description of the room and the, the smoking jackets and all of the stuff that's happening with the the, the, the furniture sparsely spread out around the room and I, I kind of like what I'm getting there and I'm uh, you know, so although I don't like the story, I like a lot of the ancillary stuff, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I went four for uh, for the environments. All right, well, that's a um, yeah. I can't say more more than that. I mean, uh, four for the perpetrator still for me. Uh, yep. Four for the environments works as well. Uh, I, I got to say, I wasn't really paying attention in terms of like you know the uh, the upper class kind of atmosphere that it was, and the art and the art, art and the uh, intellectual cultured um, sphere that he surrounds himself in. You know, is kind of and the whole idea of him being like this spider going back to his lair. You know, at the end of the day, you know, going into the city and and you know and raking his shit around and then you know and running people's faces and then going all the way back to his lair and where his well, that, vault is. I mean that's just they're, my, they're that's just my reading of the geography. Oh I know. Oh I, oh I know, but it, it works very well in terms of you know establishing you know the the mise-en-scene I guess you could say of the character and uh, and of the story as well. So yeah, a 4 is a, is a is a really good mark for the environments and I gave it a 4 as well. So what about the uh, supporting cast or secondary players? Poor Agatha at all. Oh, poor Agatha. Yeah, poor, poor Agatha. We don't really get much on her, which is which, which makes it even kind of worse in, in in a way. We don't even see her. We shouldn't even get a, get a word, you know. Like it's uh, uh, there's not really much to her character at all. She's just she's just used. Worse is that you know she's she's used you know as a as a uh, as the means to an end. Worse even that you know she doesn't even uh, have a chance to uh, express you know her disdain or or come across as a human being at all. She's just a side note. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that just goes to show, you know, the line that Sherlock kind of crossed, I guess in our modern view anyway. I don't know how the Victorians would, would, would have received that. Um, there might have been some, you know, young, you know, some people who read Sherlock Holmes or something, or even women even, would wonder what they would, would have thought at the time, you know, and how uh, Agatha was treated. Just the idea that the Sherlock, the very first idea of Sherlock Holmes with a woman, um, e e even, you know, is, is, is given this presentation, you know, it just shows us something that Arthur Conan Doyle was just not interested in at all. Exactly. And that's yeah. disappointing because, and maybe it's disappointing now, like I was saying, uh, contemporary readers wouldn't have minded so much, but I think we want more. And this, you know, if I, was to, you if I was to Irene adapt Adler. the story, yeah, I, I would, I would want to adapt this because I would love to, I would love to do new things with this. Because, like yes. you say, it's the first time we're getting Holmes with a woman properly. Like, okay, there's affection, there's potential, potentially love and lust or whatnot with Irene, and even with uh, uh, what's her name um, in the Copper Beaches, uh, Violet, uh, Violet, yeah. whatever her name, is, Hudson or whoever it was. Like you know, Violet Hunter. Yeah, Hunter. Thank you. We get, we get moments of affection and interest in women, but here he likely slept with Agatha. Uh, I just think there's so much you could have done with this. I I wasn't impressed with the supporting cast because I felt really let down by how mm. it was treated. And I know Lily Blackwell. We don't know who the killer nah, was. We don't know, like, it was and just, we don't know yeah. anything about about that. So I, you know, I felt like 
it was just and it was a cheap way to end with that supporting little joke that obviously you know and and it's funny the um the Jer- the jeremy too. brett yeah exactly the jeremy brett uh adaptation of this story is weird like they see a poster and they look at each other and they're like oh oh and that's it they, oh. <laughs> it's just i don't know i went two and i think maybe that's a bit generous but i went for it too i was i was more generous i was three okay Cool. Well, then that brings you, my friend, to a 19. Uh, and that brings me to a, let's see, 7 and 9 is 16. No, 7. And 2 is 9. 9 and 8 is 17. So I'm at 17 for this one. And you are at uh, 19. You know, it's funny. I love the perpetrator. I liked the environment a lot. I thought they worked really well together metaphorically. The spider, the web, all that type of shit. But I dislike the other parts of the story quite heavily, which brought that overall mark down. So this could be one. This could be one where, when we rank particular features, you know, it, it finds itself at a higher spot than it will overall. Yeah, that, that, that's the thing. Is like we got we, we interpret our, our critical apparatus, but we also interpret our own personal sentiments on things too, right? That's that's the beauty of criticism when you combine. I think the you know the the formal breaking down structure breaking down things are put together and you know and symbolism and showing how well that's done and how and how it appears to us and then we're also dealing with you know our own personal feelings our own prejudices mm-hmm, our, 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 our own beliefs our own creeds and and then having those things juxtaposed against each other i, I think that's you know that, that, <coughs> that makes criticism kind of be kind of beautiful in that way because it presents a as how everyone is able to have a different view on any kind of text. I always, that's one thing I always liked about, you know, um, you know, books and film and whatnot is that everyone has a different view on things. Well, that's a great postscript. And now, my friend, you have your choice between door number one or door number two for our musical selection. Well, it'll be, it'll be door number two. Door number two. Well done then, sir. You have selected for our listening pleasure. Oh, this is a great one, by the way. We've got the Blue Oyster Cult with a very appropriate career of evil to represent our friend Moverton. great song and you know i choose to steal what you choose to show 
and I will not, <laughs> I will not apologize. I'll make a career of evil. That that's a well-selected tune, my friend. Good job. That is that is very good. Yeah. Good, good, good choice on that one. I'm actually surprised that Blue Oyster Call has never sung besides "Don't Fear the Reaper." So that's mm. that, that's news for me too. <laughs> that, 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 that was educational. More cowbell. More cowbell, indeed. Yes. <laughs> right, buddy. Well, here we are. Story number three: The Adventure of the Six Napoleons, which is a fan favorite. It must be said. Uh, published in the Strand of May of 1904, and in the 30th of April edition of Colliers. Um, you'll be disappointed to learn that I did not find, or sorry, could not find a whole hell of a lot of popular reputation no. of this story. I, I did find a couple of single kind of ephemeral reviews, uh, such as Nope or Liked This One. You know, I found yeah. those, but I couldn't really find much that didn't reference the BBC, the BBC episode, The Six Thatchers, and didn't compare it to that plot or kind of read it. And so... I'm getting the feeling here that we're definitely filling a void with today's episode because we're giving the Holmes uh, lovers, not experts, uh, something that out there in the public forum doesn't really exist that much. That's true. I, I also could not find much in Goodreads either. I was just trying to find some additional quotes on on, on there. And you look you look up like the adventure of the um, um, the. It's it's always refer, the adventure of the you know, six Napoleons. It always shows in some sort of connection to other stories. Uh, and then just overall criticism of, this, of of all the tales in general. So it's interesting how there's not a lot of um, comment on this particular story. I don't know why that is. It's it's, inter- it's interesting to, be, to say mm-hmm. the least. Um, well, why don't course, you hit us up with a with a plot summary? I was about to dive into the plot of uh, the invaders of the six Napoleons and uh, kind of funny story. I kind of ended up doing the summaries for the first two uh, tales and not for the uh, one and the first and the third tale. So (laughs) there is no uh, Powell-esque or I guess in this case Bowman-esque level kind of summary for the adventures of the six Napoleons today. My bad, totally. Um, so perhaps what I'll do maybe is um, I can. <laughs> perhaps what I can do is I can get, I, I I can give you a tart rejoinder on uh, the Defenders of the Six no, 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 Napoleon sometime in the future. Because at least that way, that story will be will be given its 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 justice, as opposed to my uh, uh, dis- misorgan- disorganization. Because I mean, we you know I think we pride ourselves on the work that we do here and everything, and getting this and, and you know and bringing these conversations to light and uh, and all and all the, you know and and the light that we glean upon Sherlock Holmes and the work of Arthur Conan Doyle, but sometimes we come to the reality that um, we don't have the resources that we always have or the time that we always have or the mindset that we always have to get things organized here. And I'm speaking of myself. I'm, when, I, when I say of we, I'm speaking of me, the royal we, and not of the other we, the very organized and very <laughs> concise and clear uh, colleague of mine uh, yeah. on this particular matter. So uh, Spot the teacher. Yeah, spot the teacher indeed. But... Um, I would be happy to sum- I would be happy to around next time around to give a quick uh, summary on the adventures uh, of the six Napoleons. Um, so so maybe afterwards uh, after we've dissected it with you know with the with with, with our pipes um, some some final thoughts on, on it with that with my summary next episode um, you know might just um, bring up some uh, 
ideas or, or, or things that we haven't thought thought about yet. Not a problem. And, uh, we can wing yeah, it. Easy to do. Not we a big not a big it. deal. We've got all yes. of our pipes organized. Basically in a, in a nutshell, this is a fan favorite as I was saying earlier. Yes. The Six Napoleons is the story of Holmes uh, helping Lestrade out with an investigation. But they go in different paths. Holmes is asked by Lestrade to help out. And it's not the first time we've seen this, but it is, I think, one of the more wholesome times that we see Lestrade coming to him. And there's yes. a real loveliness to Lestrade in this story, which um, we simply don't get in any film adaptation. And this no. is why I think the source material works really well here. But essentially, Lestrade is, is looking into the strange occurrence of a number of different identical Napoleon busts that are being smashed in different spots around London. He thinks that it's a lunatic, uh, kind of like a Napoleon hater that's doing this. So he's already profiling the guy, whereas yes. Holmes is far less interested in the guy and more interested, or sorry, less interested in trying to profile the man and more interested in following the statues to catch the man. And so the, the two go kind of do their own thing. And, and, and throughout the story, we learn um, about the people who have manufactured and sold the busts and about the Italian connections, the mafia yes, connections. the mafia, yeah. Behind, that, that, yeah, behind it all. So, I mean, that, that's it in a nutshell. And uh, the, the story ends with the mystery of the six Napoleons being discovered by Holmes and not by uh, Lestrade. But how we get there is kind or of... Or by Watson. <laughs> or by Watson, who was originally called into it by uh, Lestrade. But, uh, you know, they both kind of help each other out in interesting ways. I wouldn't say that Lestrade helps... Holmes with any of his clues because he kind of doesn't believe so much in that route, but he helps insofar as Holmes uses his mistakes to rule out certain things. And so you, you see the, the yin and yang playing out here. But okay, perpetrators, principles, investigation, secondary characters, environment. Let's just start with the principles, BFG. Uh, you dropped the ball on the plot summary, so I'll give, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you first shot here at the principles. Very well. Uh, uh, this is another example to me of uh, Sherlock Holmes firing on all cylinders here. Um, definitely, I, I think he's more likable than he was in the previous story. Um, as a whole, I gave the principles a four. Uh, and the reason I did this is because I really liked how uh, Holmes uh, just... He, I, I liked the fact that he wanted to help Lestrade, that he wanted to help him solve this particular um, case, and that he was, and, and and only that it also intrigued him at the same time. So he got both his, uh, you know, he was he was doing it for the fact that he was intrigued by the case, and that he wanted to sort of helpless draw it out in, in in his own kind of way. It just kind of shows that there's kind of like even though there's like this, uh, what's the word? Some sort of um, uh, there's some sort of begrudging attachment between the two people. Like you know, it's like a friendly rivalry almost building up be, between them now. And and because Lestrade even knows as much, you know, as as you know, he finds Holmes probably really annoying and hates how he's a know-it-all and solves all his cases for him. He knows he needs Holmes deep, deep, deep down. So uh, I, I like that aspect of the story and how that influenced Sherlock Holmes in his own way. And just the case itself, I think Holmes found really intriguing. I mean, how can you not? How how could he not? I mean, you have like, you know, uh, the mafia involved here, like the classic, like we're talking Godfather two, you know, like. Uh, Black Hand, you know, Sicilian Mafia, you know, not like the Mafia of, like, you know, Al Capone, but the the, the ancient Mafia, right, uh, on hand here. So that kind of gave that, that you know, that, uh, I think that would have been an, an impelling case for him. And he, and, I, and I think he, you know, he took it to hand. 
Um, Watson, of course, is not uh, really a character. You think for a moment he'll have some agency in here because, you know, of uh, Lestrade's request, but not particularly, no, not particularly. Um, but Holmes, though, um, I, I found uh, he, he was just like at, at his best in this whole story. So that's why I give it a four, just for the fact that Holmes himself um, it just seems to be at the top of his game here. Yeah, he's also written really well. I think uh, Doyle's more interested in what he's doing here with this story, and he gives Holmes more interesting things to say, uh, a little bit more uh, more compassion in the character than we've seen in the past. And, I mean, right from the beginning, Holmes knows that Lestrade is playing coy with the way he says, oh, I've got nothing on right now. And then there's, <laughs> there's, like, a, there's like a little pause, and then he says, well, you know, tell me all about it. And Lestrade yeah, just... And Lestrade laughed. Well, Mr. Holmes, there's no use in denying that. There is something on my mind. And so, you know, it's kind of like that. that is the type of stuff that I want to see between him and Watson. Like, you know, where he criticizes Watson over breakfast about, you know, the way his shoes look, which obviously, uh, you know, correspond to some thought he's having or, you know, why he's doing this or his daydreams. And like, you know, there's all kinds of cool character writing in this canon, but we haven't seen it between Holmes and Watson. But now we get some really nice stuff between Holmes and Lestrade. I think this is the best Holmes Lestrade story that I've read to date. It might yes. not it might not be the most important in terms of first appearance or in terms of, you know, character. De- well, actually, I think it is in character development because this finally opens up the relationship. The clamshell's totally exposed and, and we can see what's what, what's really what's actually at the heart is a pretty soft respect. Yes, of course, Lestrade is lesser and he needs to be lesser. Everyone's lesser than Holmes in intelligence, but this is not a disrespectful Holmes that we've seen in the past where he's still trying to size Lestrade up. And this is not an arrogant Lestrade. This is a Lestrade yes. who who acknowledges the fact that he wants some help from Holmes. And there's a friendliness here. And I see it in the little things that Holmes does. <clears throat> Holmes does, like gives him the bed for the night, tells him he's yes. going to sleep and eat dinner with him. And, you know, little things like that tell us that there's a tenderness here that Holmes respects and he wants to nurture. And I think this is Holmes and Lestrade at their best and it's Holmes definitely at his best because while we get that side of his character we also get a really really incisive detective at work in this one the six Napoleons is one of the best Holmes stories I've seen in a long time probably the best from the return uh I think there's almost too much for me to go into at any one or two points uh but I I would certainly recommend it But since yeah, the adventure yeah. of the Priory School, I, Cer- I have to certainly say. it's it's as involved as that one, if not a little more. So yeah, I would uh, I would agree with you on that front. I went four point five actually for oh uh, wow for principles here because although Watson sucks, uh, it's kind of like Lestrade's a principal in this one, and I know he isn't. Yes, and I, and I didn't score him as one, but I thought there was enough light on Holmes, his detective work, and his his friendship that. Um, Watson must feel like a jealous lover at this point, you know. But <laughs> yeah, not Watson, anyway. not Watson. That's what we'll call the shot in this story. Not Watson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I went four point five. I, I really like the principles in this story, or the one principle and the heavy that carried the gun again. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm very glad that you saw the um, that that strong relationship between Lestrade and. Uh, and Holmes, you know, being shown here, and then and you and you and you got that from it because I always found Lestrade seemed to me he could be a really interesting character if he was developed enough, you know, um, and because I mean here's a guy I mean he works for Scotland Yard and he has a lot of pressures dealing with all these crimes and stuff like that and he uses Sherlock Holmes, but you can't say the man is an idiot. I mean, he, it's just that he's probably he's a bureaucrat, you know, in his own way, I suppose, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
and I, but I think he kind of likes Sherlock Holmes and going over into that sphere of Sherlock Holmes because maybe, you know, he probably finds that more exciting and, and he probably feels that that's probably his calling to his true nature, that he wants to do good and not just be a bureaucrat, you know, getting callers and solving the cases and getting fame from it. You know, maybe there's deep down, there's this want of, you know, of the greater good, you know, that he shares with Holmes. And I really liked how that was brought out in Lestrade in this story. Yeah. But in terms of Holmes, though, yeah, like just in how he investigated the case, how he did how, you know, he knew that it wasn't that some lunatic, that um, he uses connections and uh, he, you know, the, how he ends up finding the pearl inside in, 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 inside there, the way that, uh, you know, he breaks the busts and finds the gem. All those different little things that he does throughout the story and those little details you mentioned with him and Lestrade. I just, Holmes is really, really, really strong in this one. So 4.5, I think, is not generous. I think it's a really good mark. But I'm still going to stay at my four. Yep, no problem. And it's cool, you know, the, the idea of serendipity because, and this is where you suspend your disbelief again. But here, I'm, I'm far more interested in suspending my disbelief. Let's face it, you know, you've got a one in six chance of finding the pearl before Holmes even gets on the case. And the fact that it's the very last bust, you know, like he's just lucky enough to, to follow him to all these failed attempts of the bust before it's actually the one, right? Like, yes. that, that's, that's kind of interesting, but... <clears throat> Something that you you mentioned about um, we both mentioned about Lestrade's belief that this is like a a maniac, right? It it's interesting, and I didn't pick this up myself, but um, located very closely to Hudson's shop in Lambeth, Kennington, is Bedlam, which was Bethlehem Hospital in huh. London, and so Lestrade's supposition, if I can call it that, that it's it's the work a of maniac a maniac yeah, escaped or something. That, yeah. That it's the work of a lunatic wouldn't really be so outrageous to people reading this and being aware of the geography of the story because they would recognize that um, Bedlam, as it was called, or Bethlehem, or you know, comes from that uh, that the hospital, <laughs> the, the the insane asylum is actually really close to Hudson's shop or close enough in London terms that it could be an escaped criminal, you know? I yeah. think that's uh, it's a, it's an interesting connection that kind of gives Lestrade his reason for thinking that i think this really goes into the investigation and the overall story is that i think the, the suppositions of the characters and the theories that they have and how they interact with each other in the world of the story really lends to the, the strength of the investigation of the story itself um and it just it just really creates a, a, a just a great kind of uh atmosphere overall in in terms of why this is such a a, a great sherlock holmes story Okay, so what about that investigation? You you want to pick out any little parts of it that you're really keen on? Yeah. So I gave the investigation. Uh, I gave it a 4.5. Uh, I, I thought it was one of the best Sherlock Holmes stories in a long, long time. And especially uh, after seeing, you know, the, the, the Sherlock version of this particular story, I wasn't really excited about it. But then when I saw the storyline and it had, you know, the black hand involved and uh, all the, the, those connections, uh, it, it really, it, it really just struck out to me, you know, as a, a, a very original story compared to a lot of other Sherlock Holmes stories. Now, original, I'll, I'll be fair. I mean, there is a bit of the blue carbuncle in here a little bit without the, without, but without the comedy, I guess you, I guess you could say uh, without the fun. Um, but I just like the twists and turns, you know, like the, the, the different characters that inhabited the story and how they went to the narrative, like Harker sitting in his chair downstairs and going downstairs and finding Venucci dead with his throat slit, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and, you know, like, oh my God, so who's this guy that got killed, right? Like, there was never any sense of, like, one single uh, villain kind of uh, 
going on here throughout the story that doesn't suggest it. It suggests that there's a whole there's a whole bunch of mystery to every action that occurs in the story. There's the breaking of the Napoleons themselves, which kind of you know lend you know lend you know wonder you know as what's what's going on. Then you have the murder of Venucci in the apartment. Who is this guy? Who is the man in his part? Who is who is the uh, the other Italian man in his in in, in, the, in the in the photograph found in the jacket? You know. Um, what, what we're thinking now is what is Holmes thinking right now? Like what, what is he, what, 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 you know, in our mind, because we know these stories, what is Holmes thinking right now in terms of how he's going to solve this particular case or what, what is he thinking right now? What, what clues is he holding back? There's a lot of uh, questions and theorizing that the both that, the, re- the reader can do with the story as they read it, which I think is really, really effective. It's just like, it's like it, the whole story is just like, it just, it's just throbbing with like uh, life, you know, um, in, 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 in all faucets. And uh, I wrestle, I, I, I don't know. I just really was really compelled by it. Mm-hmm. I was as well. I, I also went 4.5. Uh, I thought it was a great story. <clears throat> there were some connections, which were a little bit, uh, a little too, Convenience. Yeah, a little bit too conveniently uh, tied together, but you know what? That that's okay. Like because I'm going with the story and I'm really interested in it. I liked all of the French Revolution stuff that's just kind of lurking behind the back of this story, like like the Red Republicans, right? Like yes, the, the name given to those radical leaders and like how is this having a play out? Does it have a play out? Is Lestrade partly right in his in his idea of this guy as that like a Napoleon, Napoleon maniac? That's right. Like that's interesting, and I don't think Holmes would have dismissed it immediately, and I don't really feel like he yeah. does. He plays plays around with it a little bit, but also you know the. The character of Beppo was quite interesting. I found him yeah. really, really cool, and the whole idea enigmatic, of Italy, but, but fascinating. Oh, yeah, to- totally enigmatic. He doesn't even have a last name. Uh, I mean, I can talk about him when we get to the when we get to the um, what do you call it? By, the, the, the by the end, players, but but by the end, I was kind of halfway, kind of you know, besides being the brute that he is, I was kind of cheering for him, you know, because this is what this is one guy who's being chased by Scotland Yard and Sherlock Holmes. And being chased by his own people in the mafia, and all he wants is the black pearl, you know that that you know that's his reward, you know that that he that, and that's why he's doing what he's doing. Um, throughout this story, Arthur Conan Doyle gives us red herrings, but they're not obvious red herrings because he puts these red herrings into history, into uh, culture. Uh, he he uses these these little clues all the way through to make us go in different directions of thought. But he still logically leads to confusion without it seeing utterly predictable. Yeah, he does. And I wanted to ask you about the ending of this, though, like uh, the Black Pearl of the Borgias, because there's a note that I've got. And then I'd like for you to contextualize it if you could, because like, <clears throat> well, OK, first of all, I'll let you, you speak of it. I mean, you know, the Borgias quite well. You've done some reading on them. Uh, what do you make of this being the, you know, the prize? Well, it is a big, uh, it connects back to old Italy, definitely. I mean, the Borgias are kind of considered to be like the first crime family, so to speak, of like, um, of uh, you know, because, you know, they were, you know, because Pope Rod, uh, Rodrigo Borgia becomes Pope Alexander. And, you know, and we already know about his reign in, in, in Rome during the Renaissance, right? Uh, uh, you know, his, and his son, Cesare, and of course, his daughter, Lucretia, the infamous poisoner. And it's kind of funny, though, is because Venucci's sister, uh, sorry, uh, Venucci's maid, uh, sorry, uh, the maid's name is Lucretia Venucci. Yeah, I picked and up course, on that, too. Lucretia, of course, was a daughter of, of, of Rodrigo Borgia. 
uh, Rodrigo Borgia, and she's well known as being Lucretia Borgia, the, the poisoner. So he's definitely considering some history here, and he's going into the French Revolution, as you mentioned, with Napoleon, the Red Republicans. So he's making all these connections with history, uh, and I guess he's trying to. It's a very worldly story, I think, in this way, and showing what the, what the state of Europe was at the time, because now you have eighteen this is nineteen hundred. So not only is like the French, the French is a republic now. There's no more emperor. Uh, England is going towards a stronger parliamentary kind of government more so than ever. On top of that, Italians have already unified uh, back like in the 1860s into one nation. And this all this all this history of uh, the past, this violence of the past is now gone, but it still exists, you know, because of this black pearl and everything connected to like this this dark past of the Borgias, of the of the you know of the, of the, of the, of the Renaissance city states and and all the the you know the ill doings that went on during that time period up until you know Italy was unified as a country represents in the black pearl to me this uh, that represented by the black pearl is that you know that uh, past evils of of society and that we try to cover those things up but they always come to the surface and I think this is just an example with the with the Napoleonic references and with the Borgia references uh, you know just tying those things together and showing the pearl is being kind of like the MacGuffin that drives all this violence. Mm -hmm. But it's still a very valuable prize at the end of it all. And oh, of course. It's interesting, like, the, Holmes makes no mention of what he's actually going to do with this thing. He just says, put it in the safe. Like, yeah. you think about him and, of course, the money that he took uh, in the last episode we looked at from the, uh, uh, what episode was that? The Priory School, right? Where uh, he just collected that big 6,000 pound paycheck. And then it's interesting to think of, of him as a bit more of a... Uh, of a coveter of goods and money, you know, but I wanted yeah. to read, I wanted so who's to... going to come claim. Yeah. Like who's going to come claim, you know, that, that, that pearl, you know, he's just, he's going to put it in a safe and that's it. You know, like, well, is it, it, yeah. Is he going to send it back to some museum? What's he going to do with it? You would uh, think in the investigation uh, that they would have found out, you know, that like, well, why did he do what he did? But of course, yeah. Beppo's not talking at all. Right. So, I mean, so it but works it out. No, he's not. He's not talking at all because he's basically a fucking animal in this story. There's all kinds of yeah. racism we could oh, go into is. if we had time. Like, he looks like, like an ape, like an yeah. ape and stuff. Yeah, they definitely get into that a little bit. Dude, you got to stop driving nails there on your desk. Um, oh, sorry, my friend. The other thing I was going to say, though, it's interesting how the old Italy kind of lands and with this, you know, the, the tradition of the old Italy represented within the Black Pearl ends yes. up there with Holmes. And Holmes is kind of like the end of that tradition and kind of the welcoming in of the mafia. It's it's quite interesting the way these type, these things play, you know, because the way the mafia has always existed, of course, but those traditions are now becoming more prevalent and rooted in British society, in American society. And yes. it's just kind of cool that the Pearl, which kind of represents part of that, um, is now with Holmes. And he's kind of the conduit through which these traditions become modern. It's, it's quite cool the way... That, that happens. But I wanted to read something about Little Italy as uh, as it exists here. And I know I'm jumping ahead to the environment, but I, I want to no, get my okay. I want to get my parts done so we can move on. But yeah, um, <clears throat> the Italian consul, Signor Silvestrelli, published a report at Rome in February of 1895 that there were two great Italian centers in London, the oldest being in Holborn and known as Saffron Hill and composed of orange men, ice vendors, ambulant merchants, plaster bust sellers models for artists, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, the other, a newer center, was in Soho, where Italians with slightly higher class of occupation resided. So the artists, cooks, hoteliers, restauranters, tailors, teachers, and watchmakers. In all, Silvestrelli reported that there were about 12,000 Italians living at London at the time. 
just before the 1900s, with Holborn representing the Black Point, as it is most composed of southern Italians whose reputation is not good. And of course, that's where Saffron Hill in the story... Uh, yeah, you know, with the the bus makers and all that stuff. That, bus that's makers, kind of, yeah. yeah that's so it, it's really area, cool that yeah. it's cool that what we think of as a little Italy is already brewing here. It's already growing here in London, and the environment which I'm I'm going to skim over. Okay, the environment of this story, I am skimming over. <coughs> even even though it's very very strong, uh, it's, in it's strong story. in in places, but overall, I didn't find the environment too too special. I just wanted to read that little note. Uh, it's more context that you need to understand Beppo and and what's going on. But uh, I, I thought that because the locations are rushed to, you know, of where the bus are made and the different shops, we don't get a lot of interior sites and space. No, here. we don't. But it's not terrible. It's just nothing that special. Yeah, so I went, we, I went we, three yeah. and a half for, for environments. Three and a half? How about now three and a half? Yeah, I kind of jumped over there too. If I, um, I did give it in one extra point than you did. Okay. I gave it a four because... Uh, Harker's place. The, I just like the whole layout of that whole sequence, like going from down to the stairs and then seeing the dead man on the ground, you know, and the bus broken and, and all this kind of stuff, and and the piece leading out of the garden. Like I just found that whole crime scene was just really evocative and just kind of showed that like what the heck is going on here, you know? Like just just the brutality of it just really struck me, like a slit throat, and you know, like I mean, like mm. that's quite that's quite that's quite gra- graphic. Oh. And then and and then you have you know the the whole idea of in Little Italy going to Saffron Hill and seeing and how Watson describes you, you know the um, the 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 statue maker's place and that whole description to me I, I don't know I, I just found it really struck out and uh, visually for me so that's why okay. I, that's why I, that's why I'm going with a four. So all right, uh, the perpetrators for me, I went three point five. I, I liked them, but I, I I just thought they were kind of proponents in the story. I didn't think any of them were really drawn on with great. You know, it's kind of how I feel about the uh, the character of the Andaman Islander in the Sign of the Four. Like, in- very interesting. Beppo's interesting as a racial profile. Uh, yeah, he, he's also unsettling in that role. And he there's is. not there's not a lot of real. Uh, real settled upon descriptive moments of the perpetrators or really their motives. Uh, I get that it's just a jewel thief, you know, and then that's, that's all right. But like you say, the menace of the mafioso comes through certainly in the, in the act, but that's really more investigation than the perpetrators themselves because it's an act that's investigated. We don't see or hear about the guy doing it. It's, it's no. not really through the perpetrator. I went 3.5 and I still think that's okay, but I should, uh, I would recommend to you the Jeremy Brett adaptation where the Italian side of things is much more developed and it's it's actually an improvement on that side of the story. At oh, least. good. good. It's, it's, it's quite worth worth watching. Uh, I went 3.5. Uh, and just to finish off here for me, and then I'll let you have your final word. Um, I went 4.5 for the supporting characters because I think that this is Lestrade at his most humane, or sorry, his most human, his most mm-hmm. sincere. Mm-hmm. I think that it, you know... Much more than a caricature, much more than someone that Holmes uses. We see a sincerity here, this kind of genuine emotion between the two of them, and both of them showing themselves as detectives. Their methods, very different, but very transparent for the reader. Like, we can see how both of them work differently, their minds work differently. And I think here we get an idea of how Lestrade works as a uh, as a detective, and why he has made success of his career. Even if he's not as good as Holmes, he's still good within Scotland Yard because he does have methods that often do lead to things, you know? 
Yes, exactly. But it's really the character development of him that made me go that high because I just really liked it. And I found that some character development has been lacking in The Return, which is maybe why when I see it, I really like it. Whether it's yes. the perpetrator or the supporter or Holmes and Watson. I, I feel like there's been good stories, but a lack of rich character writing. And there is rich character writing in this story, which is why I, which is why I raise it so high. So overall for me, uh, I got a score of 7.9.6. is my score. Wow. Well, let's add on my final numbers here. So the perpetrators, I just wanted my word on that, was that I think the fact that Arthur Conan Doyle makes Beppo a member of the mafia or a possible member of the mafia, I think that gives him some human agency outside of the racial sphere, even though that that's clearly, you know, intentional, I think, in the writing. I think that is somehow kind of it takes him away from being the Andaman Islander thug of the, of the, the sign of four. So... I I kind of think that um in in and I I kind of think that he he he's a little, he's a little better in that way uh, as a villain. Um I like the fact that he was on his own and trying to you know he had all these forces against him and he was still doing what he wanted to do was get was get his reward and um and maybe there's a suggestion there because he doesn't speak English or whatever he can't really get his he can't get it, he can't really get his say because the only people who 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 would speak to him or talk or he would talk to or he could understand would we, you know, would be his own fellow Italians who are against him. So there's kind of a sympathetic kind of, I don't know, like I want to know more about Beppo in the story. I guess that's that enigmatic thing I was talking about. So overall, I, I actually really liked him. And uh, Benucci seemed like he could have been interesting too, but again, he wasn't quite developed though. So I would like to see, you know, Benucci kind of stalking, Benucci uh, 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 being some kind of charming kind of sort of supposedly good guy character in the beginning or something like some guy inquiring and talking to Holmes or meeting the characters or something and then all of a sudden he ends up dead and then what happens to him and they'll, they'll, they'll infer that he was mafia and that would just show kind of like the stretch of the mafia maybe even get into maybe even to Scotland Yard or something like that you know um, just different ideas that I had while, while, while I was I was um, reading the story but I, that's why I give it a four <laughs> okay, okay. Um, moving on to the environs I give that a solid four as I mentioned and then mm-hmm. uh, the um, last one, the sporting cast, because of the of the of the great of uh, the great Lestrade moments in this story, uh, and just in total, just the cast itself. You got Venucci, you got uh, Beppo, you got uh, Harker, who seemed like you know he could have been interesting in his own way. Uh, I found the the, the 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 overall cast was very colorful. Uh, <laughs> Not to use a racial kind of um, mm-hmm. s- s- statement there, but overall, I, and, and and the atmosphere on top of that, I, overall, like I, I just found this, I found the supporting cast quite quite good, and it was a good kind of rogues gallery, and uh, I, I, I give it a, um, a, a four point five. Okay, that brings you to twenty one out of twenty five for the adventure of the six Napoleons. So our highest scoring story today, one that we both really seem to like, and I think. Although we rushed through it because we had some problems there with our plot and all the stuff at the beginning, I still That's think right. there's a lot in there that we touched on, and we would definitely recommend it. Now you got a choice between uh, doors one and two, my friend. I'm gonna go for number two again. I'm feeling lucky. You're gonna go for door number two. Yes. You sure? Yes. Okay, here you go. Door number two. Oh, you've made a good selection. This is uh, a track, a short track entitled "Vendetta Siciliana." So here's your mafia. Oh, 
I could play it all, but I think that's enough. The Vendetta <laughs> Siciliana, played by the Napoli... Da, 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 da. Napoleon? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Sorry. Neapolitan, the Neapolitan mandolins at ah, work there good. for our pleasure. Okay, that brings us to our final story of the day in approximately 20 minutes to do it. It is, of course, the adventure of the three students. Uh, you want to hit some publication information, and then I will go through my <clears throat> prepared plot summary. Yeah, well... First published in June 1904 in The Strand. Uh, Goodreads, what do they got to say? Meh, no murders. I like murder. Happy face emoticon. A nice, a nice little mystery, but the stakes were a little importance to all, but one or two people. <laughs> one person said a little right, on okay. the point side, who copied the test paper? Seems trivial for Sherlock Holmes. Mm. This mystery was pretty straightforward with a heartwarming ending. It kind of was a heartwarming ending. Yeah, I guess it kind of was. Good old Bannister. Good old Bannister. Is that it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I thought it seemed hilarious, by the way, but we'll get into that. Okay. The Adventure of the Three Students. The stakes are hurdle high in this tale when Holmes returns to campus to rekindle the fires of his undergraduate self. While he stops short of joining Alpha Delta Phi and siphoning ale from a fraternity kegger, he does get embroiled in a lame-wad affair with barely tangible consequences involving three students, a frantic lecturer, one lousy sidekick, sorry Watson, but you know it's true, and a gormless, if loyal, servant. Mr. Hilton Soames, tutor and lecturer at St. Luke's College, hears that Holmes is in the neighborhood for some quiet research and anx anxiously projects his current problem upon our hero. Now, in a move of buffoonery not dissimilar to that made by Percy Phelps in the Naval Treaty, a highly sensitive and confidential exam paper was left carelessly out as Soames, wait for it, popped out for some tea. <laughs> when he returned, he was met with evidence of intrusion. Yes, first of all, his servant Bannister had left his keys in the door and the exam paper on his desk had been rifled through. Pencil shavings and strange pyramids of muddy clay were also discovered, which would suggest that someone from outdoors had rushed in, made some copies, disappeared possibly with the servant's help. Holmes can't really be bothered with the case, and he tells Soames as much, but the scarce forensic details, coupled with the promise of grilling three young students down, like Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men, eventually, yeah. eventually lures him in. He goes around to investigate the scene, and Gilchrist, McLaren, and Dalut Ras are the three students in question. The first is a sprinter, a gentrified heir to a throne of failed ambitions, the second, a genius but impetuous youth with gambling problems, and a third, a mild-mannered, hard-working Indian. No prize for guessing who's suspected first. Yep, <laughs> it's the brown-skinned man. Though he's quickly dropped from Holmes's book, his otherness is enough to broadcast the palpable xenophobia of the time. Holmes then checks out the windows and the doors of the place, fairly quickly calls out that some obvious points that Soames misses in his worry of losing face and drawing scandal upon this ancient and honourable college. First, the outdoor window. Holmes measures it and determines that only Gilchrist is tall enough to have been able to spot papers on Soames' desk from the outside. Secondly, more clay is found in Soames' bedroom, which confirms to Sherlock and anybody else playing at home that the cheater didn't really make a stealthy escape when he heard Soames return, but he actually hid in the bedroom until he could <sighs> exit safely. Holmes and Watson do a quick and ephemeral tour of stationary shops in the town in what's probably the biggest waste of time in any of the stories we've encountered so far today. <laughs> he, they try to match pencil shavings to a particular brand, and then they talk about Faber and Faber, and we get a short dialogue about German pencils, which really isn't necessary, but none of it amounts to very much, and the pencil is, just turns out as rare, so it's difficult to source. 
And I don't know if this was Doyle trying to show off his knowledge of, of, of lead pencils or what was going on there, but <laughs> it was kind of weird. Maybe it was a writer's moment for sure. Anyway, there's also the issue of the long scratch that's left on Soames's desk. Now, this takes a bit of time to solve, but it makes perfect sense with the random pyramids of clay. It came from a pair of cleats or spiked shoes. Now, who jumps around on spiked shoes? Gilchrist the athlete, of course. And so the mystery is solved. Well, almost. Until the perpetrator speaks up and bears all, Holmes will not be at ease. So he presses the screws a little harder, in light of the evidence, onto Gilchrist, who folds like a cheap suit. And not before long, Bannister is also a confessor. As it turns out, Bannister is a pretty honorable guy, and he was protecting Gilchrist out of a familial duty. You see, as fate would have it, <clears throat> Bannister was once Gilchrist Sr.'s butler. And after Daddy took to dealing and fell into disrepair, Bannister took it upon himself to look out for the promising son. So committed was he that he found a job at college, where he could keep up his watchfulness under more clandestine conditions. When Gilchrist seized the opportunity to cheat, it was Bannister covered for him that pulled most at the young student's heartstrings, and so provoked his confession. That and the acuity of Holmes's all too easy approach. Yes. So in the so in the end, Holmes or Soames rather is about as useful a principal as Mr. Weatherby is from Riverdale High. And I'm talking about the comics, not the show. <laughs> so I guess that would make in this analogy Sherlock Dilton Doily, or one of the other geeks that we only get to see in the double digests, the big thick ones. Unfortunate, yeah. Unfortunately, Watson is such a non-entity in this story, he's put down by Holmes for his stupidity numerous times, so I guess he would have to be Moose. Well, I kind of wish they just forgot about this one altogether and just had sodas. At the chocolate shop, yeah. At the chocolate shop, pop shop, yeah. yeah. So there you go. <laughs> Alright, well, I'm in, I'm in, uh, I found that very amusing, I must say. Um, yeah, I'm kind of on the side in the, of overall in this story on uh, that one person who mentioned uh, the heartwarming ending is nice. Yeah, of course. But um, I like murder. <laughs> you know, I like mm, murder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have happy face emoticon. I, I, I think it makes I think it makes mysteries great. <laughs> so who copied the test paper? Yeah, I'm not interested. Shouldn't the like, faculty deal with that? You know? Well, yeah. And like, that's the whole thing, right? Like this whole fucking thing is like, oh, it's a great scandal upon our institution. Really? Is it really a great scandal? Like a kid copied a test paper. Are you going to lose your job because you live on the bottom floor of the tower? You know, like, yeah, you're an idiot, but come on. Make no wonder Holmes is like, for fuck's sake, like, do I have to do this really? Like, <laughs> yeah. do I really... It's like it's like a Saved by the Bell. It's like a it, no. I tell you what it is. It's like a Saved by the Bell episode that they realized was too shit to put to air. That's what this is. <laughs> and they and they just substituted Sherlock Holmes in for Zach and uh, Slater or something like that. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> right. So. Uh, so let's just dive into the principles here. I gave them three point five. Okay. Uh, uh, Sherlock was you know he was good as usual. Uh, he was a bit of a prick at the beginning, but you know what? I don't really blame him because he was probably doing some inv- serious investigative work. For, we don't really quite know exactly um, what, what he was doing there, but he was doing some research. And it was probably very constructive research, and he was interrupted by, you know, this uh, utter tri- 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 triviality. Well, it is important because Watson says, and I quote, Sherlock Holmes was pursuing some laborious researchers in early English charters, researches which led to results so striking that they may be the subject of one of my future narratives. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo! Watson. Very exciting. Very good. Thanks. Uh, so what you're saying, Arthur Conan Doyle, oh, sorry, Watson, uh, is that what you're saying is basically that um, 
you haven't really finished that story yet, and so you're just giving us this little trifle. Well, thing. yeah, it's, I mean, it's a writer's prerogative. It's a tease, isn't it? Like, you know, yeah. come, come back. There's good ones to come, even if the ones I've shown you so far in this year haven't been that great. He was probably uh, doing some womanizing uh, in, in, uh, during the stretch of, of writing or something, and he just kind of just, 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 and he just jotted the first thing he heard about some, like, uh, scandal at Oxford or something like that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some weird stuff with this story, actually. It's almost like he has to lay these foreshadowing, teasing, you know, this is so cool type comments because the story isn't really that cool. Like, the first line, it was in the year 95 that a combination of events into which I need not enter caused Mr. Sherlock Holmes and myself to speak. Like, why? Why not? Houses are, yeah, it's like the houses are aligning, you know, like what, what the moons are aligning. Like, what the heck is so big about this story? Yeah. Anyway, it's it, it. There's there's also like an Obi Wan Kenobi moment here. <laughs> like this is when Solmes comes in. He's like, no, no, my dear sir, such a course is utterly impossible. When once the law is evoked, it cannot be stayed again. And this is just one of those cases where, for the credit of the college, it's most essential to avoid scandal. Your discretion is as well known as your powers, and you are the one man in the world who can help me. I beg you, Mister Holmes, to do what you can. <laughs> like, oh, okay, where's R two in the corner with the the hologram? You know, just coming. Yeah. Through. Seriously, help me, Obi Wan Kenobi. Anyway, blah blah. Yeah, yeah. So Solmes is a bit of a of a knob, but yeah, okay. So you went three point five for the principles. Yeah, maybe yeah. even the three. Maybe even that might be generous. Maybe just a, a, th- a solid three is almost worthy. But I'll stay on my three point five. Okay, I mean, I went for a three. Uh, I got nothing to add to what you you said. I mean, Holmes, no. Holmes doesn't really do a hell of a lot. Like, no, uh, it's almost like it, it's 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 almost like he's you know it's like just he may he may he may as well as just like you know. Mm-hmm. he could have solved it from his armchair <laughs> yeah, think yeah. about it. the elements of the story that I enjoyed weren't really the um, they weren't really the, the characters to be perfectly honest with you no. I enjoyed some of the little things like there's a lot of controversy in, in the, the scholarship of these stories about Holmes uh, and what university he went to now we talked about this before the, the whole Oxford or Cambridge debate when we were looking at the Glorious Scott right Yes. And uh, Trevor Sr., Trevor Jr., the university friend and all this stuff. But the, the controversy over the place, like despite Watson's uh, cautionary words about, you know, how he has to remain confidential about the setting and the story and blah, blah, blah. Everybody seems, every fucking person who like is really into Holmes has tried to discern whether the University of Oxford or Cambridge is the, the site of this place, right? And they've, they've, yes. they've looked into, like, the location of the colleges and the types of windows and stonework and how many stationary shops are within walking distance. Like, it's, I was, I was wondering that, yeah. Absolutely ridiculous. But, it, it, you know, to, to cut a long story and a pretty boring story short for, the, you know, for people like us, um, given Holmes's familiarity with this place, and with some of the people, it is largely accepted that this is the university the Holmes attended himself, and his knowledge of like the colors of uh, letters and badges and stuff on jerseys leads to blue, which makes people think Cambridge. And so I, I'm thinking this is probably Cambridge. But I don't know for a fact. That's just my guess. That's my guess of reading through all of the nonsense. Of, not nonsense, but you know the work that people have done in the past that I haven't done. I'm just let's reading, just call it Camford. Yeah. Okay, Camford. Uh, but yeah, other things that I found interesting about the investigation, like uh, some cool context about uh, Thucydides. You know, this is what this is the Greek, yeah, the, the, the Greek Peloponnesian paper. War. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting that that's what they're reading as well. Like I found that was quite quite cool that that's that that's what's being stolen, right? And 
the note that I had to read to you, or at least uh, share with you, uh, about Thucydides. Am I pronouncing him correctly, by the way? Thucydides, yep. Okay. Uh, is right here. Sorry. Yeah, it's pretty interesting context. I, th I thought you'd like it. I uh, have actually, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at my, at my bookshelf right now, Thucydides, History of the Peloponnesian War, right there. Oh, cool. Well, here we go. One of the ancient Greece, uh, one of ancient Greece's greatest historians, the Athenian Thucydides, served as a general in the Peloponnesian War and was exiled after failing to prevent the city of, of Amphipolis, Amphipolis, Am from, Amphipolis from falling to the Spartans, right? Uh, blah, blah, blah. Solmes's choice of a passage for the test from Thucydides for students to translate strikes some as a bit of a poor judgment. Lord Donegal in Baker Street and Beyond presumes that any student hoping to qualify for such a prestigious scholarship would surely have studied Thucydides rigorously and would therefore know his work as well as an honor student in English literature knows Hamlet. Any excerpt that Solmes has used would then not qualify as a large passage of Greek translation, which the candidate had not seen. However, Tony Bird suggests that Solmes could have used portions of the less studied speeches, not the narratives, because the speeches mm -hmm. generally contain few contextual clues, people, yes. names, etc., and thus are harder to recognize. Bird also points out that the scholarship was likely to be an award given to a student early on in his career before an undergraduate would have completed his reading of Thucydides, required only in the second part of Oxford's classical course. Mm -hmm. I had to read some Thucydides when I did a Greek civilization in first year university. Oh, cool! I have not had to read any Thucydides. <clears throat> he's actually, he's actually, he's actually, uh, he's actually quite quite good. He's not as dry as a lot of some of that stuff comes out to be, at least not in, in certain translations, anyways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also found it interesting uh, in terms of again, these are just little things within investigation uh, details, like getting his blue. I didn't know what that meant. Right. Uh, the perverted side of me was thinking something quite seedy about what that meant, <laughs> getting his blue. But no, I figured it all out. Uh, it's the expressions derived from the color caps that Oxford and Cambridge oh. have, which refers to a person earning a high status within a club or a sport when talking about Gilchrist earning his blue, you know, for for track and field and stuff. For track and field. Yeah. So in North American parlance, it's kind of like uh, on a hockey jersey or something or you be named assistant or captain wearing the letter, you know. Yeah, okay. On a jersey. I, I, so it, it's yeah, it's something like that. Or or, or or getting like a letter jacket or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> anyway, uh so with respect to investigation, eh, it was interesting, but it's nothing that I'm gonna dream about at night, and it certainly isn't heavy you sink your teeth into stuff. Holmes seems Dude. a little bit irritated to be there, and so does Doyle, and really, at the end of the day, it is like it is like an Archie story in double digest, <laughs> which is easily solved. I mean, I went for a three because yeah, I like Archie, you know? <laughs> I guess, yeah. I like the Archie comics, so, yeah. There three, you go. That's about it. Three. Okay. So, I and, and Watson, was he even in this story? I can't remember. Like, yeah, yeah. Holmes is such a dick to him. Like, the first the first thing he says to him is that um, oh, you, this is something that has to do with brains, not, not brawn. So, uh, no. Yeah, like, you're not necessary. Like, he actually says that. Let me find it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Because he's a total dick. Here it is. Um, <clears throat> right. So, da, 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 da. yeah, okay. Uh, the first of several insulting remarks Holmes gives to Watson. Well, he said, let us go round. Not one of your cases, Watson. Mental, mental, not physical. All right, come if you want to. <laughs> like, what a dick. I think he was just pissed off to go on this excursion, probably. Well, there is something in that. And the annotations, the annotations speak, I think, more chronologically to Holmes being really unhappy at this particular time. And him being away from Baker Street isn't something that he's... 
he's uh, particularly pleased about. And so maybe the way he's insulting Watson is evidence that his mood hasn't really improved since leaving London. I don't know. I'm just putting out there what some scholars have said. Like, it's, it's almost like, and this is what I don't like about the scholarship. Like, you got to justify everything. Like, there's a reason for everything. Like, this is a perfect creation. Holmes is a perfect literary character. Doyle, a true genius with every inch and centimeter and stitch and, and testicular follicle of his canon is there for a reason and purposed. Like, I don't, why? Why do you have to say that? Why can't he just be fucking lazy some days? Maybe he was hung over when he was writing this. You know, yeah. like, I just, I feel sometimes like scholarship is, is a bit unnecessary. That's not scholarship. That's not scholarship. It's that's, fandom. Yeah. That, that's, that's fanboyism. That's what yeah, that is. Yeah, it is. You're right. It is. They just didn't call him that back then. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, so yeah. yeah. I mean, it's funny to investigate it, but I went uh, three for the investigation. And in terms of perpetrator, oh, man. Ugh, like it's it's tough to even find one. Uh, kids kids cheat on tests every fucking day at my school. <laughs> are they are they bad? No, they're just kids. And even a university student, you know, a gentrified heir to to this estate or his father's lost fortune. Like, I don't know. Is he a perpetrator or is he just a chancer? He's not really a criminal, and that's the whole problem with this story. So a perpetrator? No, not really. I'm going to. Because it's just, this is just this is just an everyday crime. I see it all the fucking time. In fact, I see worse. I had to break a fight up at the dining hall last week, and uh, there was a poor girl who got her head kicked in and left in an ambulance two weeks ago at my school. So you've been rolling your eyes at this. I'm not rolling my eyes. I'm just like, yeah, okay, this is like the real white man problem case, you know? Yeah, first world problems, exactly. Anyway, let's let's speed up and finish this this yeah. because I don't have a hell of a lot more to say. The environment of being on campus. Oh, sorry. What were you gonna do for your perpetrators? Oh, I, I I was a bit more generous. I, I was a three. I just like the idea that there was like the, the villain. The villain was an evil, and they had motivations. I didn't like that about them. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that he did kind of like confess before he was going before he got before everything went down. He was going to. Yeah. Uh, and secondly, I like the idea that you know he you know he realized that you know he 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 took responsibility and and then he went down and was to South Africa. You know so. Uh, to, to, to work in the Rhodesian police force, you know, so I, yeah, I found that yeah. kind of kind, I took, of, kind of, yeah, I cheated on a test, so I'm just gonna fucking go to South Africa. Okay, right. <laughs> he sounds he sounds okay. pretty dumb. I gotta he's, say, he sounds pretty dumb. Yeah, because it's not like it's not, it's not like you, what, what you did is worthy of transportation. You, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe South Africa's nice. I mean, all those white yeah. people there, some enclave. That's right. Yeah, maybe. Well, Doyle speaks fondly of it. So, <laughs> so this Bryce Courtney. <laughs> so, so what did you do? What did you say? Oh, I just said three for the perpetrators. Okay, that's very generous. Uh, yeah. Environment for me. Okay, it's we got we get a nice nice description of the office, and I like the the geography of the. Or perhaps the architecture of the tower and how they all kind of live on top of each other. It's kind of like a, you know, Mr. Roper and Jack Tripper type thing you got going on there. <laughs> or and, I mean, Sesame Street. Or Sesame Street. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's right. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty cool. You know, I like that stuff. So, yeah, the environment's all right. It's neat for him to be in college. And we do get some descriptions of sandstone and leafy ivies and stuff. And so yeah. that's okay. But it's it's just, you know, it's, it's pretty... It's pretty middling, isn't it? I mean, I went. In middling. the end, Reggie goes to South Africa. <laughs> in the end, he goes to South Africa. So you know, I went. Reggie, to, Reggie, I went two point five. <laughs> I was again a little more generous. I don't know. I just like the description of the, of like not Oxford or not Cambridge, and I, I thought I did play well in the atmosphere of the story in that sense. Even though the story was overall lame, I'm still going to be give kind of more impartial with the marking. So okay. I gave it three point five. 
3.5, that is impartial. Well, uh, with the secondary characters, because I like Archie, I like Mr. Weatherby, I like Solmes. I think he's interesting. Yeah, he's he's emotional and he kind of he doesn't quite collapse on the floor the way some of our other clients have in this collection. But he's more he's more of a Mrs. Grundy in this one, in my opinion. Yeah, he is kind of like that. And not the right. TV Mrs. Grundy. No, uh... definitely not. But uh, yeah, you know he's he's okay. And I I like Bannister. I think he's interesting as a supporting nice guy who brings out the moral thread of the of, of the, the theme. You know, he's, he's he's cool. You mean Smithers, right? You mean Smithers from uh... <laughs> Smithers. Yeah. Yeah. The well, uh, Lodges Butler, right? Anyway, <laughs> I uh, I went 3.5 for the supporting players, which brings my total to, uh, what's that, 9 and 3 is 12. This is bad, but it's uh, it's a 14 for me. In many ways, it's more of a Scooby-Doo kind of story, more than an Archie story in the end, now that I think about it. With yes, Josh, maybe... you're, you're absolutely right. And I wrote Scooby-Doo down on page 88 of my book here. I honestly did, because... <laughs> I'm with you on that one. It is kind of like, oh, let's solve this pesky mystery. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Rut row. Uh, <laughs> so what did you do for your supporting? I did 3.5. Okay. That's, that's, I don't know. Maybe I was a little generous on this story because I was just so lame that I, I was trying to see the story that he was trying to write here. Or maybe he wanted to make it exciting, but it just, uh, I was trying to think like, maybe he's trying to tell something, a, a different story than what he was usually telling. He wanted to do something different. What was the ambition of? Arthur Conan Doyle when he wrote this story. Yeah, and well, we never so find I, out. So I look into, I look deeper into like the environs and into how, you know, the characters were portrayed and stuff like that. But in the end, it was kind of skimming off the surface, really. Well, you know, if he wasn't telling the story, I would almost think that Watson had just fucked off to like the campus bar or something because he's so not in this. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like he's really he so has, not in this. He has to walk around and be basically like a... Uh, I don't know what 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 are the things called like those uh, mini camera things. What are those things called? Uh, oh, GoPros. GoPros. <laughs> basically, yeah. basically a GoPro. A GoPro yeah. in this story. He's a fucking GoPro. You're right, man. <laughs> anyway, uh, pick a door. Okay, let's wrap this shit up. Pick a door. One or two. Number one. <laughs> okay, number one. Here we go, buddy. It's uh, the Beach Boys with a classic. Be true to your school. So a rah rah tune for our university setting. Oh, you should add sugar, sugar. Okay, so I got a letter on my sweater for football and track. We got that idea of getting your blue. I've also yeah. got I also got the idea, you know, being true to your school. If we read this story as Holmes being back at his alma mater to do some university research in the English statutes, then he maybe this is why he does the case because he's got some I owe you know, it's like an alumni thing. You know, I got exactly. I, I can fix a little problem for these idiots here. Although I've risen so far above them in my life and station, nevertheless, I'm going to do my bit. So yeah, true to be, be true to your school. Why not? Raw, 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 raw. But I'm reading a lot into that to make the connection. Anyway, look, that that was fun. You got to with that story. <laughs>
That was fun. I, I enjoyed that. What was my that. final mark? <clears throat> Your final mark, my friend, was 16.5. So looking back at today, uh, Adventure of Black Peter was uh, 19 for me, 19.5 for you. 17 for Milverton for me, 19 for you. 20.5 to 21 for you on the Six Napoleons. And uh, the three students, 16.5 to my 14. So you certainly had a better feeling of all of these stories, but we were pretty tight, to be honest. It's only Milverton and uh, three students we disagreed on by more than two points. Yeah, I think we we both had different kind of reactions to different, uh, I guess, themes of of those stories. You were kind of, on Milverton, you were kind of on the defensive, I think, with the whole... Uh, I guess social justice. Yeah, uh, I guess I was differences a bit of, yeah. back from now and then, and I, that's fine. I mean, and and that and that that shouldn't affect your view of the story, but at the same time, it does. You can't help that, and yeah. that's an important point to make because this is the modern day we're we're dealing with now, and not to eighteen ninety five or nineteen hundred. So you know, we we have to employ, employ those views. We're not going to we're not going to de- deny them. And I was burning a proverbial bra. It must be said. You were burning a proverbial bra. Nice, nice. Well, look, uh, we got coming up a couple of great stories, I'm told, at least. Uh, the Piznez is next. I think we're also moving into the territory of Abbey Grange, if I'm not mistaken. Is that coming up with us as well? The uh, So the Golden Pinsnez is next. Mm-hmm. Then the Missing Three Quarter. Missing Three Quarter. And the Abbey Grange is after that. And then finally, the Second Stain. Okay, awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to that. And that'll wrap up our work on the uh, return, won't it? Yeah, and then we'll be di- and then we'll be uh, descending into the Valley of Fear. Exciting, and it has been fun. This has been a good episode. Uh, I've enjoyed it. We had uh, no real technical difficulties, just a little bit of unpreparedness. But we're amateurs after all. You're not here for the expertise. You're here for the love and the well, the fun of the amateur touch. Good save. <laughs> well, I saved your ass, didn't I? <laughs> If you ever want, if you ever want to hear my, uh, if if you want, I can regale us with with my version of uh, Milverton uh, next episode, and you can and and see what you have to say about the points that I made. Okay, I look forward to that. Yeah, but I don't actually. (laughs) Let's be honest. All right, pal, it's been fun. Episode fourteen is in the books. We'll see you back here in a month's time for episode fifteen, when we'll take on those four stories that you mentioned. Au revoir. Adios.